following podcast is sponsored by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. Pinocchio, The Winter Soldier, The Avengers, every season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Cinderella, Jurassic Park, Batman, Hercules, Wally, Star Wars, A New Hope, The Emperor's New Groove, Little Red Riding Hood, Alita, Battle Angel, Humpty Dumpty, and AI2, Teddy's Revenge. Cirrus, Socrates, Particle, Decibel, Hurricane, Dolphin, Tulip, Monica, David, Monica, Longing, Rusted, Seventeen, Daybreak, Furnace, Nine, Benign, Homecoming, One, Freight Car, Monica, Monica, Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week I have my very good friend, web series creator, actor, dynamic producer, amazing person, Conrado Falco. Welcome, Conrado. Hi, Louis. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Conrado. And if I forgot any of your honor, honorifics or titles, please fill those in. And uh, Conrado, why don't you tell the audience what movie we're going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about AI, artificial intelligence. That's right. Artificial intelligence, the Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick collaboration from 2001. Conrado, how much of this movie is Steven Spielberg and how much of it is is Kubrick. Would you say it's like a 50-50, 60-40? You know, I think that's the big debate that's always going to happen with this movie because it did originate as a Stanley Kubrick project, but he purposely at one point decided, as far as I can tell it, as far as my research says, he decided that it was impossible for him to make. It was kind of in the 90s and he was thinking of actually having an actual robot play David, which would have been really creepy and also the technology wasn't fully there. CGI wasn't fully there. Stanley Kubrick wanted to make this movie, but knowing himself how long it takes him to make a film, he knew that casting a child would not be conducive to his style of filmmaking, right? Right. Kubrick took like a million years to film any of his movies. So he knew that if he started, by the time he was done, the child was going to be 18 years old or something and going to have a full beard. And So so kind of the opposite of boyhood. (laughs) <laughs> the opposite or well right yeah the opposite effect but Spielberg is great with children right and he has a reputation for being a great director of kids so that's I think why he brought the idea to Spielberg first yeah this this movie does not work without Haley Joel Osment's performance incredible like what an incredible like maybe the best child actor ever I was thinking after watching it like who, what child gives you that performance and also sixth sense obviously yeah I I don't I don't have anything in my back pocket as like a counter to that I can't I don't even have a short list of like uh, well these are contenders with Haley Joel Osment for best child actor he's indisputably the heavyweight champ 
Yeah, because kid actors usually, you know, a lot of them are good, but you can always tell that they're like performing, right? And he just seems so natural in a way that it doesn't feel like he was just reading the lines after Spielberg gave him a line reading, right? It feels like he was actually acting, which is strange. It's, yeah, it's strange when you can tell that a kid has as much understanding of the emotional stakes in a scene as the adults do, and that they're giving everything that the scene needs. That, I I just, we're going to jump around a little bit in the timeline, just because I really want to talk about that dinner scene while we're talking about his performance, where there's actually a couple of dinner scenes. There's the one where he eats all the spinach and, and breaks down, which is also creepy and incredible, but... The first one where he's he's with Monica and Henry, which is interesting that he actually refers to them as mommy and Henry. He never calls Henry dad. They're all having dinner and, and Haley Joel Osment laughs at something and they, re- they respond to him laughing. And then he starts doing this very creepy forced laugh while like staring at them, while leaning forward. And there's so many layers to it. There's so much of like the robot knows that this is something that is getting the response he wants. It's endearing him to the family, which is his ultimate goal. And at the same time, though, it's it's very creepy. It's very much, I analyzed your emotions and I'm giving you this emotional need. And the other, the other big part of that is I wrote down what really hit me was this was probably the first time laughter has been heard in this household in literally months, if not years. I mean, that's another reason why it's so jarring when, when he laughs like that. Yeah, incredibly cre- creepy, in my opinion. The, the, everything before he gets imprinted, the performance is so creepy. And I think that's also maybe something to get into. It's a, an interesting thing of how he only becomes uncreepy once he has found someone to love or once he's been imprinted, you know, like just a machine that is like a kid is an incredibly creepy thing. Does Um, he become uncreepy at that point though? Good question. I think he becomes much more natural, right? Like I think, because at the beginning he acts very erratic, I think in my opinion. And once the, once he gets imprinted, I think he's creepy because he loves his mommy so much, but he's behaving like a kid who loves his mommy so much. No, in my opinion, not so much as a robot. Well, let's talk about a couple of things. Let's talk about your definition of a robot first and foremost. And then I want to talk about this movie's definition of a robot, but also this movie's definition of love. Because I have a lot of thoughts about what this movie thinks love is and whether they program this this robot to love and what that means. So let's start with Conrado. To you, what is a robot? A robot. I guess it is a machine that is able to move and operate on its own, created by humans, and that doesn't need like human interaction in order to operate. That's how I see it. I feel like artificial intelligence might not be necessary for a robot. I guess you do have to have a little bit of intelligence to perform tasks like a microchip chip or something. But... I think you can have like a dumb robot, right? You don't, a robot doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, what we get into in this movie, like you're saying, like a, a capable of processing complex emotions or whatever, right? I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, so you're saying a robot doesn't, is, is not something that's operated by a person. It operates on its own, right? It does something aut- aut- automated right? after yeah. a person tells it to do that. I would say that's the broadest definition for me, yeah. Is my blender or my microwave a robot? 
I tell it to do something, I program it to do something, and then I walk away, it does that task while I'm brushing my teeth. Well, if I'm microwaving something, I'm not brushing my teeth, but you know, <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, I know what I mean. And I guess it is a, is a question of, of how, uh, how often do you need to program the robot, right? I think a blender, you probably can't operate totally unsupervised. So that doesn't feel like a robot to me. A microwave, maybe it's closer. You know, like an Alexa or a Siri kind of device seems more like a robot to me. Yeah, I th- I, I would say an Alexa or a Siri is definitely a form of a robot. I think I, I don't I don't know what the clear distinction is between that and let's say a microwave because it, you know objectively it's it's responding to your input. You're giving it in in this case of Siri or Alexa a verbal command. And it's carrying out its task to the best of its interpretation without further input from you. Mm-hmm. The one step further that Siri takes it is sometimes like if you say text so-and-so, she might ask you like, oh, they have two, I have two numbers for so-and-so. Which one do you want me to text? So that's like a little bit smarter of it. But uh, let me ask you this, because this came up on, a, on an episode where we were talking about the Transformers. Is a car a robot or any sort of mech suit, like a Gundam suit or in the movie Pacific Rim? Are the mech suits robots or is the fact that you're fully encased in it and operating it with your limbs, does that mean it's not a robot? Mm-hmm. You know what? I think I'm changing my mind. I think that I'm, I'm starting to think that as everything that humans do, everything is defined by our own humanity. So I think a robot is actually a machine that resembles humans in a weird kind of degree, right? I think the fact that Siri and Alexa have been programmed to have kind of a personality or show a personality rather than have one makes them more robotic to us than a microwave, right? Which doesn't look yeah. like a human, doesn't act like a human in any way. These, um, a car, not a robot, because it's, it looks like a car, but a Gundam suit or Pacific Rim kind of situation, that's a little more robotic to me, right? I think it's, it's the definition, maybe it's, I think it's not as important, especially for discussion of this movie, than the closeness to humanity, I think is what is really at play. Yes. I bring it up largely because the movie is takes takes deliberate efforts to call these mechas. They don't call them... They, they do actually, in the opening scene, refer to them as bots occasionally. Jude Law's character, Joe, Gigolo Joe, refers to himself as a lover robot. He very, he very specifically hits the robot, which implies to me that he resents the simplification of the term or sees it maybe as a slur when he's called a bot or lover bot. He is proud of, of being a lover robot. The rest of the movie, most of the characters call them mechas or mecha and not android or cyborg or anything like that. Is there, Conrado, do you draw a distinction between a robot and android and a cyborg? Are those different categories of robots to you? Good question. I don't know what the difference between a robot and an android is, but I do think that for me, a cyborg is a a human that's been like augmented with robotics or like uh, mechanics is how I understand it. Like someone with like a arm that's a robot arm is a cyborg from what I understand, right? Like Cyborg in the Justice League movie, it's like a dude who like had an accident and now he's going to have robot, right? Yeah, yeah. And that fits the definition that I understand of a cyborg, which is that it's partly living 
and part robots. It's like a ro- robot parts to keep you alive or to supplement you or give or augment your abilities in some way. And so I think that's the the requirement to be a cyborg, like General Grievous from Star Wars, uh, the prequels, is a cyborg because he has organs, he has internal living organs oh, encased right. in his robot body, which is why he has a breathing problem. Yeah, well, can, we, can we go on a Grievous tangent just for a second? Absolutely, please do. Is, do you know if he is, a, was he a human before and then turned into a robot? Like what's going on? He was not a human i know i know more about general grievous than you were probably expecting <laughs> general grievous is actually from a planet of of warriors kalish he's a kalish and he was a commanding officer in the military on his, on his planet he well his planet was attacked by count dooku and by the separatists and his almost whole entire body was destroyed in a in a spaceship crash when he was trying to get away and so they recovered his body and they put it into this experimental cyborg body he was he was literally a precursor experiment Mm -hmm. to what what the emperor was trying to do and ended up doing to darth vader and he was kind of a subject that they didn't really care whether the set the test was successful or not he just happened to be successful and he became (laughs) a powerful (laughs) successful in quotations right because he could barely (laughs) breathe True, he still had asthma, so <laughs> and he still got taken out by by General Kenobi. So yeah, well, it's great to know that Grievous walked so Darth Vader could run. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's really perfect. <laughs> so in this movie, there there are no no part of David, no part of the robot is is living. It doesn't bleed. It doesn't. It does. Wait. Conrado, does it cry? Does the robot cry? It does cry. And I have that in my notes. And I and I was going to bring this up, which is very, I think that says a lot. Like, why does this robot cry is a yeah. big question that I have. I assume it's, it's to give you the full having a kid experience. Yeah, that's that's the only explanation. But then, but if that's true, why can't it eat candy, right? If it, if it ate birthday cake. For example, it would break down. So, mm. it you if it can't eat and digest food or process food without getting broken, you're not getting the full kid experience, are you? I guess. Although you know, uh, I guess the the it's much harder to have it process food or like what do you do with all the residue, right? Like, I think that's one part of the. I mean, I don't know, but do you actually need the crying? I was gonna say having to clean diapers and whatever, you know, and deal with like, oh, that kind of bathroom situation. It's not something that you want that the kid experience. But do you want the crying? I don't know. And I don't know that the people in this society want the crying because I want to talk about this society and why they built David and why they programmed him the way they did. Because I agree with you. I agree with your premise that the crying doesn't seem like it would be a necessary part of a David bot because they are so focused on, on creating the singular experience from the robot that what do they, how do they word it? It's a perpetual child caught in a freeze frame, always loving, but then it never grows up. It never learns. It never develops. I mean, I suppose it does learn. It learns, you know, how to clean your floors efficiently and how to make your coffee. It learns, you know, what clothes you want to wear so it can help you get dressed it learns tasks that make your life easier, but 
I, I just, I'm not a parent, Conrado. I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if, if um, I'm qualified to talk about this, but I can imagine having a child that never accomplishes something that's really, that's a really limited way to look at it because he accomplishes quite a bit. Man, I'm struggling with with you know what I'm struggling with? I'm I'm really trying to reach for reasons why David is not a person. I'm trying it, with my human bias to come up with a definition or an explanation of of David, a description of David that makes him not human because that's my instinct is to describe mm-hmm. him as not human. But the more I try, the the harder the more walls I fall into, the more obstacles I'm I'm, I'm hurdling. How do you feel about this? I first of all I want to say I think that's one of the brilliant things about the movie, right? That it really I think for me it's the movie that most effectively brings up that question in a way that feels relevant. Like a lot of the time it's like is this robot a human? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. But like it's a robot. Like I don't know. Like what am I gonna do with that? It doesn't apply to my lab right now. But in this instance, it feels like it's so specific, right? And it also taps into something so primal about ourselves, the, like this need to be loved and whatever, that makes it kind of uh, hard, you know? The only thing that I would say that that is different between David and, well, there's a couple of things, right? He can't eat and he doesn't age. I think it's the, the main situation. He's kind of like, like you said, stuck in a freeze frame. But other than that, he seems to be experiencing all like, you know, the, the emotions and whatever that we do. Yeah. And he does, he does develop. He does change. We see his change. We see his growth. We see him becoming more human, arguably, or more finding himself, really. He finds his own purpose and he follows it to the absolute end until he ch- achieves his goal. But the way that he's built, the, the fact that it's, that it's very deliberate, it's very much part of, it's very much the point that he's literally caught in a freeze frame. He's, he's a perpetual child. Can you tell me a little bit, can we talk about Dr. Hobby in this opening scene when he's explaining to his colleagues or uh, is this maybe a, a college class or something, but he's explaining to this room full of other doctors and scientists, what he's accomplishing with, with this David bot. And the, what I love is the, uh, the, the callousness of their conversation. Can we talk about this scene a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you want to talk about how the hobby, Dr. Hobby is a, <laughs> sorry, I know you don't want to cry, but Dr. Hobby is a maniac. Like yep. he's a crazy person. <laughs> he's, yep. he's a psycho, right? Like he's clearly he's gone through something very similar to what Monica and Henry are going through, right? His child who's called David and looks just like Haley Joel Osment had some sort of disease and or died or a tragic accident. And his way to cope with it is to create a million robot versions of his child that will be a kid forever and love you forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think therapy would have been like maybe less expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he he's a parent who rather than imagining what his child could have grown up to be and 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 the accomplishments that his child could have put out into the world by living his own life and becoming an adult and and deciding to do something great in this world, he imagined what if my child never died and also never grew up past the point when he died? Mm-hmm. And th- the fact that that is the dream that he invests literally decades of his life and, and billions, I don't know how much money, because I don't know what the economy is at this point in this movie, but, but an insane amount of money for sure into this project says so much about him. It also says a lot about the society because mm-hmm. this society is already 
very far gone. This is something I didn't pick up on the first time I watched this movie. It took multiple viewings for me to really tap into how crazy and how far gone society already is at this point. There's a lot in the first half of the movie that makes it look like this technological utopia that we've achieved, this Jetson's dream technology making our lives simpler and easier and convenient and awesome. And then that gets completely shattered. That illusion gets shattered by the second half of the movie. But there's a lot of groundwork in it in the opening scene. Spielberg loves to tell us the movie that he's about to show us at the very beginning. And this movie does that. We have that group of scientists at the beginning. They're very, very casually talking about how, oh, we've got thousands of lover bots in production every month. And, you know, I I personally test the lover bots for quality control. Ha 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 ha. (laughs) And like, they're just so jokey about making a human kid. And the questions that they're asking are the philosophy that the movie is going to unpack as it goes along. But I'm I'm just struck by their callousness. How do you how do you feel about this society that we see at the beginning of the movie? Okay. Is it something we should aspire to, or do you think it's it's a cautionary tale? I think this movie is a cautionary tale on many, many fronts. Before we get into it, I do want to say one more thing about Dr. Hobby, which is that not only does he want his kid to live forever in robot form and stay a kid forever, he also wants everybody to have his kid. He only makes one model. <laughs> like, he assumes that everybody will love having his kid. And it's all, he lives in uh, in the part of the world that they have the most, like, vegetation, trees, right, and re- natural resources. They are, this is clearly where all of the most rich, the upper echelon lives. So the people that can afford a David Bot are reasonably going to be his neighbors. So, like, his whole neighborhood, when they have, like, a birthday party, it's going to be just David Bots. That, imagine that scene. Yeah. Um, David, and what's the what's the little girl one that they have um, opposite at the end? Daphne think, or something? I think it's Arlene. Yeah, and we never Dar- see her. Yeah. So I don't know. So I like to imagine that it's just Haley Joel Osment's face in the girl's body. With a wig? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of faces, the effect that we see at the beginning of the movie when we find out that Sheila, the demo bot, the, the, the bot that he's demonstrating on, which, by the way, it's it's I think it's completely unnecessary for him to all of the things that he could have chosen to have her demonstrate that he has control, that he can command her. The the thing where he's like, stand up, take off your shirt or take off your clothing. Dude, <laughs> like, get, like, tell her to, I don't know, like drop something and pick it up. Like, let, let's, why is that where the direction that you went in? I think it goes um, to what you were saying about this society that is totally hierarchical, right? It's been like, mm-hmm. like we learn in the opening narration, the world has had horrible disasters, floods and the climate change and whatever. And they say very casually and tossed off, a lot of people in the third world died, right? They say like a a lot of countries, like they like massive death. And you're like, wait a second, like what's going on? And then you're in this suburban kind of landscape with all these like wealthy people living fine suburban lives. And you're like, oh, like, you know, these people survived. And I think they, also what you're saying about the way they treat robots and et cetera, it seems to be... We uh, are the top, you know, we are the, the people who survived, we're the ones who are continuing civilization or whatever, and we deserve to do all this stuff. And not one of them challenges Dr. Hobby's notion that parents will want a child that's perpetually caught in a freeze frame. None of them challenge whether that's healthy 
or Mm -hmm. good for your, like whether therapy is a good alternative option that doesn't come up. This room full of ostensibly very smart engineers, programmers, maybe just marketers. I don't know exactly who is in this room, but they seem to be scientists of some sort. None of them are like, well, hang on. Let's talk about the negative implications of, of keeping a perpetual child when you're when you're stuck yourself in a cycle of trauma that there's, just doesn't come up. They don't challenge him on it. There's the one, uh, the what, the black woman who asks the question, which is the closest that it comes to challenging, like, well, so the robot can love, but can it be loved in return, right? And that is kind of, I guess, the big question at that point. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. She asks, can you get a human to love them back? Mm-hmm. So it's not a question of can a robot love? It's will a human genuinely love a robot back? Will we reciprocate that love? But I think in order to answer that question, we need to figure out does the robot truly love? Mm-hmm. Hobby's approach to this is he he criticizes ro- robots of the past, automatons of the past. He calls them primitive monsters who could play chess. Um, his Sheila bot is this is still to to me one of the coolest effects I've ever seen on screen when he presses a button in like the roof of her mouth and her face splits open to reveal like this robot metal face and um like he takes the the hard drive out of her forehead to me for some reason that's that effect is really cool looking and it's more disturbing when her face closes back up and like seams back together for some reason. <laughs> that is more unsettling to me than when it splits open. Mm-hmm. But looking at this movie 19 years after it was made, I don't see the CG in it. I know it's there. I know that it's that we have better digital effects than this now, but it's done really well in 2001. Mm-hmm. And I'm still awed by it the moment I see it I'm like oh my gosh her face is opening <laughs> that's that looks so cool that's so otherworldly totally totally 100% I couldn't agree more my wife actually said that while we were watching the movie the other night she was like how do they do this like this is incredible like you know she was saying actually that things kind of look crappy now because we kind of take it for granted you know and it's all CGI and this is something that I think you've talked about in this podcast before the that moment where you still were using some kind of like practical effects with the CGI in order to make it really special. And I think this is kind of like the peak of that, I would say. Um, yeah, that's that's sense. always really powerful when you know how they did it, but you're still, your first reaction is still, wow, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a really powerful thing. So I, I don't think Dr. Hobby or anybody in this room at the beginning of the movie when they're talking about it knows what love truly is because Dr. Hobby describes that they want to, quote, map the impulse pathways of a single neuron in order to teach the robot to love. What does that sound like to you, Conrado? Does that sound like love or something else? You know, that's a big qu- I was thinking about this the other day when I was walking my dog. Like every time I've been walking the dog since... Uh, I watched the movie. I've only been thinking about, I know that Lou's going to ask all these questions. I don't know if I'm going to answer them. Like this, because I feel like these are big questions that are not easily answered, right? But this is what I came up with for this one, which is that I feel like at the end of the day, if the machine, if we have programmed the machine to react in a certain way to love, then I feel like you have to accept that it is capable of, like that's the emotion, right? Like how do you distinguish between the genuine emotion and emotion it has been programmed because as far as we know, we could have been programmed, right? True. Would you say that love is obsession though? Because I feel like they taught this robot, they programmed this robot to obsess 
over a singular um, object. But I don't know if it's healthy to say that obsession equals love. Yes. I, is this movie problematic? Is what you're trying to say. It's like a t- toxic masculinity sort of obsessed kind of thing. I think you're right. I, I thought that you were asking more like, is the, is the feelings that David is having, are they uh, valid or are they, you know, should be taken as actual emotions, which I think is a conversation that's important. But what you're saying, I think is also very right. That the way that this... <laughs> maniac completely psychotic man has interpreted love it's an absolute kind of pathological obsession so i think i think this man is like truly like the biggest villain in film history or something i I do think it's both things i think that this maniac programmed his idea of what love is into the into the robot into david which is obsession and i but i think david from david's perspective that's what he knows and that's what he sees the world the way he was programmed to see it. It's not his fault that this is how he processes love or that this is his idea of love. So I do think what you're saying is also true that at least from David's perspective, it is a genuine emotion. I don't think we can fault him for it uh, or say that it's artificial, even if it was, even if it came from his creator and his creator had his own intentions. David, by the end of the movie, has his own agenda based on whatever he was taught and what he's interacted with and his friendship with Teddy and, and all of his other experiences that lead him to down his path. Um, and I do think it's genuine. And I do think it's, we're, we're going to talk about this a lot, but I, I think beginning, middle and end, it, it is always fair to call David a full human in the sense of like you and me are human. David is a human being. And I always want to talk about him as a person uh, because I, dr- I drew, I truly do look at him that way. Okay. Wow. Great. Great. This is all. This is all great. I think, in kind of Kubrickian fashion, this movie is kind of this tragedy about creator who doesn't really care about your feelings, right? Like he, the Doctor Hobby, just simply creates David because number one, because he can, and number two, because he has his own stuff going on, right? We have established that he's a perturbed individual, so. Yes. He does it for those reasons, but he kind of like the woman in the meeting says, he doesn't stop to consider what will happen to the robot. Okay, so the robot can love, but can he be accepted? And will people accept the fact that you are basically creating, like you're saying, a human being that has been created by you? And at some point, they're going to have this kid who's obsessed with this, with people and loving, and uh, there's, you know, the people are going to die. And what kind of what happens in the movie? What's going to happen to this robot? Yeah, and she hints at the flesh fairs that we see later on. She she hints at the fact that not everybody in the world feels the same way about robots. There's a lot of animus towards robots. And yeah, it's very much that like uh, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should, uh, yeah. to quote Dr. Malcolm. And I have a question, Conrado, about Pinocchio. Does Geppetto create com- Pinocchio because he can't have children or because he doesn't have any children? Or is it because... Geppetto had had lost a child. I, this is a good question. I don't think that's specified in the Disney movie, at least, which is my the one I'm most familiar with. I don't think mm-hmm. they say that. I wouldn't be surprised if they do make one of those live action remakes if they bring that in, because that <laughs> seems like a very screenwriter thing to do. Make um, it darker, make it more yeah. grim, or make it more like give him give him Geppetto some motivation. You know, why is he making this puppet or whatever? <laughs> Clearly, Geppetto is an older man in most retellings, and he probably passed him by, you know? Like, he can't get the chicks anymore. He, 
uh, doesn't have an opportunity to get a child. So it's the closest thing that he's going to get. Yeah. I'd, um, I'd like to suggest that it's possible, uh, you know, Geppetto wasn't interested in having children or like maybe wasn't interested in, in the steps that it takes to have children. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not implying anything like definitively about Geppetto, but I'm saying all things are possible. With, it could with have him. happened. It, 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 that's totally uh, valid. I think it also could be that he was just focused on his career. You know, he wanted yeah. to be the best puppet maker in the world, was a driving business at the time. And he just focused on that. It was the Silicon Valley of, of medieval Italy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why, why are we talking about Pinocchio, Conrado? <laughs> does right. that, what does this movie have anything to do with Pinocchio? <laughs> Okay, so here's something that you might not know about the movie. I'm excited to bring this up. So obviously Pinocchio is a theme throughout the movie. It's the storybook that Monica reads to David. What's interesting is why does she pick that book? And the little like naughty boy brings it up, right? It's Martin the, does, his, yeah. her actual kid as a, it's, you know, trying to be a jerk to David. It's very cunning. It's very underhanded of him. Like, yeah. I, I feel bad talking about like, <laughs> describing a, uh, a, a crippled eight-year-old kid as, as like a villain in this movie. But man, he's very cunning and underhanded. He's a, he's a horrible jerk. Um, we'll get into him later. But what I wanted to say was that when they were working on the movie, Kubrick didn't call it AI. He only referred to it as Pinocchio the whole time. So for him, this was just a retelling of that story, kind of. It, it very much is. Like I said, Spielberg tells us at the very beginning of a movie what movie we're about to watch. That's you, that's true with almost all of his movies. And this is this is no exception. He, we get a lot of like the Pinocchio story, but also it, it, it just just the fact that it opens with a narration. And there are so many references to this being a fairy tale. It's explicitly called out several times that this is David's fairy tale journey, his hero's journey. There's actually a, a scene at the beginning that that in a in one show of restraint, in one show of like subtlety for that theme, because a lot of it is very overt, but it, but in a lot of ways it's subtle too. There's the murals on the hospital wall of the children's wing when Monica mm -hmm. is visiting her son. And I, I want your help with this a little bit, Conrado, because I was trying to track them all. We see as she, uh, her talking to, not her talking to the doctor, Henry's talking to the doctor. And they're walking by these mural, murals. Mm -hmm. And I see a Humpty Dumpty, Pinocchio, then Little Red Riding Hood, and then I couldn't place the next one, but after that it was Cinderella and the Emperor's New Clothes. Is Can you fill in the gap, the one that I missed? It looked like something with golden wings, and I couldn't tell what fairy tale that was. Something with golden wings. I thought maybe um, it was Hercules or something, like one of his tasks, but I, I couldn't really place anything specific. The reference was something like with golden wings. Yeah, so I I was a little bit obsessed with fairy tales as a kid. So my best guess for that is I know there is a tale, and I can't remember the name of it. Maybe it'll come to me in a, in a few seconds. But there is a tale in that is about a prince, and there is a sort of I think he turns into like this sort of golden bird or something like that, or maybe it says golden statue of a bird or something. So that rings a bell, but I don't know. It's a, I don't know if it's a very well-known story. So I would be surprised if they put it there, but it could be because mm. that definitely rings a bell. And it's my best guess, I guess, for, for a golden winged creature. Do you think that each of these fairy tales that are alluded to get 
sort of like equal play in the movie or is this really just like a Pinocchio story and and the mention the murals and the Mm. details are just to support that this is a fairy tale okay I love this I love this game okay can you repeat the the fairy tales and we'll and we'll say if we see any parallels yeah so these are the murals that we see in order and I and I do think that if there is significance that there's significance to the order that we see them too Humpty Dumpty Mm -hmm. Pinocchio Little Red Riding Hood the one with the wings that I'm not sure, the golden wings, then Cinderella, and then the emperor's new clothes. Okay. So Humpty Dumpty, I think, makes me already think of like things breaking and or, or like eggs, uh, children, uh, hatching, being born, that sort Eating of situation. Spinach. Eating spinach. Face melting. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so that makes me think of, of fertility, right? And also of like mm. fragility. Of like the kid who's, I think it could be Martin. It's, you know, the kid that's born, but it's also about to die. Yeah. All the king's horses and all the king's men, they have, they have so much money. They have so many resources. This family, mm-hmm. like the, the father, Henry, works for the, the Dr. Hobby. He works for the number one, like the Amazon of this future, you mm-hmm. know. The, <laughs> um, yeah, in, in electronics. And so, and even still he can't cure his son. He doesn't have, they don't have the resources to cure his son, all the king's horses and all the king's men. Awesome. Totally. Okay, great. I'm loving this content. Let's keep going. Okay, Pinocchio is the next one. I don't see it. I don't see it in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that one's, that one's pretty self-evident. That's just like the yeah. whole movie, basically. But it's yeah. you know, basically David, that David comes into their lives. So it's the next yeah. movie. Uh, then we get Little Red Riding Hood. David alone in the woods once he's abandoned, right? Mm, yeah, and he meets a few characters along the way, and most notably Gigolo Joe, uh, mm-hmm. that helps him out. So who's, yeah, I guess who's the big bad wolf then? Is it the Flesh Fair? Could be the Flesh Fair. I think it could also be a subversion of that with Gigolo Joe, right? He's supposed to be kind of this, he's from a different world, right? He's from the big city. He's a Gigolo character. You would expect him to be kind of this dangerous creature, but he's kind of an ally. So I don't know. Maybe it's a subversion of that. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely does. Uh, Joe is good at like donning disguises every once in a while. He changes his hair for a different client. And also when he realizes he's in trouble, he cuts out his identifier. So and he's like good at pretending that he's like David's caretaker later on. So he's yeah, he's he's good at disguises. And that could be like he could be like a subversion of the big bad wolf. And the next one that we get is the one that I can't identify with the golden wings. Mm-hmm. Do you want to speculate on that one? Yeah. Well, the fact the fact that you the fact that you tell me that it's golden wings makes me think it's the the image of Cybertronics, right? That David uh, yeah. thinks about that the bird with the with the feathers and whatever. So I think that's probably what's going on there. Yeah, Martin asks him to draw it later, like draw his very first memory. And mm-hmm. um, he draws that bird. It, it, Martin says it looks like a peacock. Later we see it's the it's the symbol for, um, what did you say the company's called? Cyber... Cybertronics, I think. Cybertronics, not Cyberdyne. <laughs> I don't think The ones so. that built Skynet. <laughs> no, but I think it's just like, they just did a world scramble with that, right? Yeah. So then we see Cinderella... It's uh, it's a mural of her. I, I think it's Cinderella based on the prince because she's dancing with the prince and he is wearing this military jacket. And I was trying to think of like what prince from a Disney movie wears that jacket. And I think it's the prince from Cinderella. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dancing with the prince. Okay, Lou, I think I, I see where this is going and I'm starting to get chills. So this is, here's what I think. 
the golden wings is the moment where David goes to Cybertronics uh, with Gigolo Joe in Manhattan and everything is flooded and he kind of meets himself, right? The moment with Cinderella is what happens afterwards when, once he gets to the Blue Fairy and he's able to have this last day with Monica and the dancing, because let's be honest, there's a huge kind of what Freudian, I was going to say Oedipo, but I don't know if that's how you pronounce that word, kind of thing going on, that he's obsessed with his mom, you know? Yeah. So they're dancing together for one last time. And the last picture, if I remember correctly, you told me is the Empress has no new clothes, which I think is the true ending of the movie, which is like this day, that's it for David. You know what I mean? After that's done, he has no clothes. Like he was just obsessing over this one thing that's going to be gone. And then there's solitude forever. By his own, by his own choice too. Like he decides to shut down. He knows what's at stake. He knows, like the 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 future robot aliens that talk to him, the synthetic um, life forms that like give him this memory. They explain to him, you know, this is a temporary thing. Once it's over, it's over. And he decides, once it's over, I'm over. I'm done. I'm shutting down. I'm going to sleep. That's really poignant. It's by his own decision. It's by his own actions. And he is completely. He has achieved his obsession. And it's what does him in, in the end. I'm glad wow, we went through those. That's great. Yeah, I'm so glad you like noted down all those images. This is so, so, this makes me love the movie even more. That it's yeah. all there in front of you from the beginning. Yeah, man. Watch any Spielberg movie. And I, like I said, in the first five minutes of the movie, you know what the whole movie is going to be, beginning, middle, and end. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing. Shakespeare does it all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, he literally told us at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, like in, a, in, one, in one page, hey, this is the story you're about to watch. Uh, I'm spoilers. One, another thing I noticed throughout the movie, besides the Pinocchio references and the fairy tale references, you probably noticed this too. And Conrado, you're, you might be a bigger Kubrick fan than I am. I love Kubrick, but I, I don't know as much about Kubrick, I would say, as I know about like Spielberg. So are mirrors a thing that Stanley Kubrick is generally obsessed with because he, this movie is obsessed with mirrors. It's obsessed with reflections. And I have a theory for why, but I want to hear your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry to break your heart, but I actually am also not a Kubrick uh, fanatic or anything like that. Like you are more into Spielberg than Kubrick. There's a couple of Kubrick movies that I love, uh, Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Shut and stuff, but I am not an obsessive. So I don't know how much into mirrors he is from those two movies that I'm just, that are the ones I've seen the most. I don't remember too much about it. So I think this might be a thing that is just, I think it's very thematically appropriate, right? It's like this whole thing of like, is this boy a human or not? Look at yourself in the mirror and like, are you that different from the boy? Um, but I want to hear your interpretation. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's very much, we built robots in this movie. We built robots in our image, quite literally. Hobby says at the beginning, almost like confrontationally, he says this. I think it, it's to that woman, the scientist that at the beginning that's like talking about, well, the, the one that like brings up any possible hesitations about this experiment. And he says to her very confrontationally, God created Adam to love him. They're literally stating, he's literally stating at the beginning, I'm playing God and I'm okay with it. Like, this is my, this is my, my intention is to play yeah. <laughs> God and I'm building robots that will love us. They will be our creation. And this movie shows so many reflections, so many mirror images, because we've made these robots in our mirror image and we have to confront them. We have to deal with them. The movie asks, we are responsible for them. So is it our fault when they end up 
catapulted into a flaming propeller and they feel pain, is that what responsibility do we have over that when we built them and put them out into the world and expose them to this hatred and bias against them, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, their, their creator is extremely callous about that and uncaring. So I think the, the, mir- the mirrors that appear throughout the movie are to make us, the audience, think about how much a robot is literally a reflection of us and how much when we create them, we have to confront our own humanity. We have to confront, we have to see the things about ourselves that we sometimes don't want to see. And, you know, like you, you, you and I, we could walk around, I could be very unhappy with my appearance or I could feel guilty about something that I did. And psychologically in subtle ways, I will walk around spending my day avoiding mirrors. I'll avoid my own reflection. I won't look at pictures of myself. And that's just a a subtle psychological thing that my brain sort of does. And I think the reason is because we we have this shame or we have this sense of not wanting to see our shame, not wanting to face our shame or face the worst parts of ourselves. So when we make robots that look like us and act like us and talk like us and are meant to imitate us, and, and we use them, we literally abuse them emotionally and in other ways, uh, we don't like having to feel uncomfortable about that. Yeah. So that's why, that's why I think there's so many mirrors in this movie. It's to mm-hmm. force you to feel a little bit uncomfortable about that. Yeah, that's, that rings very true to me. And I think, yeah, because there's something, I mean, anything robots is kind of uncanny, right? Especially if they're going to resemble you so closely. And I think they do a great job of, of the makeup in this movie of making all the robots feel just a little off from what a human, like uh, the skin is a little shiny or it's too, like in Gigolo Joe is like everything is so perfectly stylized in his like, you know, facial hair or whatever. But what you were saying is a lot of the time something that happens to me is that I will have this like visual reactions to like maybe like an actor or something like that or a character in a movie and I say like, no, I hate that actor. I hate that movie. And it's kind of because it reminds me of something that I don't like about myself, right? That I'm uncomfortable with. Like if it's even like the way they look, it's usually because it's like they look in a way that I feel insecure about my own way of looking or whatever. And if they do something, it's something that maybe I've done in the past and I'm very embarrassed to have done. So I think I can see that. I think there's definitely this whole thing of, yeah, the, the, the humans in this movie do not want to confront the idea that they have created these lives and that they are mistreating them, right? That they are ambivalent to what happened to them. There's a particular shot in the movie. It comes back again later on, but it's when David is first walking into Monica and and Henry's house and he's looking at the pictures that they have up on on the wall or on the on the shelf or on the dresser. And he's looking at these picture frames of the family with Martin. And there's this shot where he steps into frame and you see his reflection filling this empty space in the family portrait. And you, you like, there's no dialogue, but you're seeing him ask the, this question of like, where do I fit into this family? Am I replacing this child that I look so much like? I'm sure that there's a moment of childlike curiosity when he first sees that picture where he wonders because he looks so much like this kid on purpose, he wonders, is this me? is that me in this picture? I like, did they, you know, I don't remember. I don't have a built-in memory of taking this photo with this family, but here I am in this photo. 
Later in the movie, we see literal photos of the actual David that was alive in Dr. Hobby's office. So it's not Martin who is an analogy, or uh, it's more accurate to say David is an analogy for Martin. In this case, David is a literal replacement for the David in these photos in Dr. Hobby's office. And he Mm -hmm. sees the same reflection of himself in the picture frame. And that shot is incredible, but... Conrado, I want to hear your thoughts on on that, but also the very first shot that we get of David when he's stepping out of the elevator. Did that shot stand out to you as well? So what stands out to me about that shot is that it starts off, he's almost like an alien or like something coming from like a spaceship that is totally lit up and, and his head looks tiny and then he steps into the frame and you can actually see him for the first time, right? And it's kind yeah. of this otherworldly entrance. Um is that what you were trying to, to allude to? 100%, because that's the way that Monica first sees him, right? That's the shot, is her POV when he's stepping off the elevator. He looks like one of those aliens at the end of the movie. He's got the very mm-hmm. large, bulbous head, the thin neck and thin body. And yes. when he steps into frame, he he fills in. He becomes a human child. But his the first image that we see of him is like those synthetic aliens at the end of the movie. What's even more poignant about that, where where it sort of circles back, is when Monica abandons him in the forest. She is driving away from him, and the very last shot we get of David before the movie goes into act two mm-hmm. is, and, and this is like closing the circle of Monica and David's story, at least for the first part of the movie, is her driving away, and we see the rearview mirror, and his human body is elongating and stretching back into that alien image of him with a thin head and and tall body. So he's gone full circle from being introduced to Monica as this alien thing. She rejects Mm -hmm. him. Then, you know, she comes to love him and accept him like a mother to her, to her child. And then she has to abandon him like old Yeller. She has to, she has to like, (laughs) she has to get rid of him to save his life. Old Yeller is a really bad analogy there. It's but more she like has Lassie. To, you know, like when, Lassie. when they throw the rocks at the duck and they like, go, boy, you don't there want it to is. be with me. And when she drives away, he goes back to being an alien. Lou, what an incredible movie. It's so, so, so good. Can you believe there's people in this world who think this movie's not good? Like, it's, it, I can't even begin to understand. But, but there's a lot of people who think that way. Conrado, I can believe it because I didn't like this movie the first time I saw it. I'm an apologist for this movie now. I saw this movie when I was an obnoxious 18-year-old. I don't don't know what I wanted from this movie. I really don't. I don't know what I went in expecting. I think I saw a trailer and I thought that it was going to be more like the movie that we got later from Spielberg, Minority Report, more of like an action techno future sci-fi thriller and this movie is not that but it shouldn't be it's it's not trying to be it's much more contemplative it makes us ask really deep philosophical questions about ourselves about our future about the future that we're we're building and what responsibility we have for that future uh, in a way that minority report Kind of does, but kind of doesn't. In a totally different way. Like, how crazy is it that this was like a tentpole summer movie, right? Like, this yeah, was like a that's summer the problem. Blockbuster. It was the marketing and, and the release schedule. That's what it was. Because it's, it's not like, my fault. It's the, <laughs> <laughs> There's no set piece in this. Like, the biggest action set piece is the Flesh Fair, which is harrowing and like absolutely grotesque, right? It's yeah. not like an action exciting moment of like, oh, yeah 
car chases. It's like, this is horrible. It kind of wants you. Like, I think, th- I think there's a read of this movie where it just puts that out there for you. You can go ahead and, and cheer if you want to. Like, if you're the kind of person that would go to the flesh fair and, and cheer for these robots' destructions because you can turn off that part of you that has any sympathy for them, I think this movie lets, allows you to do that. And the way that that scene culminates, Brendan Gleeson, when he, man, when he figures out that David is an actual robot and he takes that other guy aside and he's like, hey, you're not thinking about pulling him from the show, are you? What a, what a shock that conversation was. And then the way that he parades him out in front of everybody and still thinks he's going to get the crowd on his side, but that's their breaking point. Mm-hmm. The fact that this thing looks so much like an actual child that's the breaking point for this audience that wants blood, that wants to see these robots destroyed. This is this is the line that they draw. They won't do it to David. It's a, that that flesh face scene is is something that I have thought about and grappled with for a long time. I think it works really really well as a kind of like emotional piece of filmmaking. I think it's like as a kid that scene was absolutely horrifying to me. I had mm-hmm. like absolute nightmares about it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was horrendous right and i think it works on a visceral level even to this day um but i wonder about what the movie's saying in that scene about the people in the movie and the society that we were talking about and i go back and forth and i'm wondering because on the one side it seems like this society and maybe maybe this does fit actually now that i think about it but we have a very like we were talking about hierarchical society right there's the people at the top and the people that are surviving in the bottom and the people at the flesh fair are clearly kind of the blue collar people of this world, right? The kind of maybe the people who have lost their jobs to robots and things yes. like that. And there's like yes. a lot of like, you know, economic resentment uh, the phrase that we've heard for the last couple of years as well. And so there's kind of these parallels to the real world in that sense. And the idea that they would, I don't know, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Like, does that fit? Like, what is a movie trying to say with that? I can I can read it as something of like, you know, the elites want the working class to be against each other, right? The robots are basically also working class people. So, and they want right. to keep them against each other, which is something that we see, you know, and, you know, busting unions and things like that. Yeah, well, the movie, the movie really goes into whether, what is the purpose that we built robots for? And the flesh fair asked that question in a really scary and terrifying way, but a very honest way. Throughout the movie, robots are referred to by a lot of people as toys. It's mm-hmm. nothing more than a toy. It's just a toy. When when David is brought to that birthday party and all of Martin's friends are looking at him and they're remarking how real he looks. First of all, another great kid actor, that kid that was like a jerk, that kid was great. His performance, when he's like, you're Mecca, Anical, Orga, Mecca. That kid's oh great. My God. That kid is <laughs> so realistic. I wanted to punch him in the face right then exactly, and there. Exactly, exactly. Yes, he nailed the performance. <laughs> yeah, they, and they, they definitely reinforced that he's a toy, right? This is your toy. He replaced Teddy. Teddy was a super toy. And Martin, when he's playing with, with David, he like says that to him and he says like, oh, what can you do? Let's see what your features are, right? They, they talk about the lover bots in the same way, the lover robots in the same way. They are toys, they have a specific purpose and they are built for that purpose. So 
I think that a lot of people at this flesh fair, they see robots as having no other purpose than a catharsis for us. They are a target. They're an object that we can focus all of our rage and our frustration about the world that has left us behind for whatever reason, maybe replaced us with automatons. So they are able to take out that aggression on these non, what they see as non-living beings and just destroy them in callous ways that gets, in, in a way that maybe a violent video game or you know, watching a violent movie gives you an outlet for that. You know, if you fantasize about those things, maybe like playing a video game like Mortal Kombat lets you get it out of your system. I don't know. Like maybe that's the idea of the flesh fair is is this is this their way of, I think catharsis might be a way to describe it. I definitely buy that. And I think there's definitely a level of culture wars sort of thing going on there. Um, if you remember in the beginning, something that I noticed for the first time, this watch, in the opening narration, they tell us that, you know, like we said, there were floods and a lot of people died in third world countries. And, and their narration basically says, and so we had to create robots to fill their spots. So what they're saying is basically we lost our working force because of these uh, disasters that only the rich people could survive. So now we have robots and that's why we created them, right? My yeah, biggest- rather, than, rather than saying, hey, let's share whatever resources we have left with everybody and make sure everybody lives and prospers and survives, they said, well, our way of life, just because the world stopped doesn't mean our way of life has to stop. And in order to continue our way of life, we need to build robots to perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they literally replaced the working class that used to serve those functions. So I can, yeah, I can definitely see how that working class has this level of resentment where flesh fairs became a thing. I'm not saying it's justified, but I'm saying I could see the path to it. Totally, totally. And 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 I think there's also, I can also buy into the flesh fair being a thing of like the the people at the top wanting to fume those flames, right? Instead of having a sort of like robots and humans come together to as you know workers of the world unite or something like that um they would rather have them in conflict with each other the flesh fair scene is also a scene that you need to watch this movie multiple times i think to get the full story or at least you need to watch this scene multiple times because it's so densely packed with the history of this world there's the r lee ermy robot that you know talks like a, a drill sergeant and he says something about like 75 years ago i was time magazine's robot of the year there's the nanny bot that mm-hmm. you can tell is like some iteration of a i mean it's exactly what it describes itself as it's mm-hmm. it's a robot that was built for live-in child care so that clearly replaced a large swath of jobs and 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 mm-hmm. service industry jobs and i love that it's a french robot that she speaks right? french yeah and it instantly takes to david just because he's he has this image of a child and it instantly is protective and loving of him which is very fascinating we also get we get a lot of like gener- different generations of robots there are some that mm-hmm. are much more advanced than others that arlie ermy one is like literally like an old man's face with this furnace body and weird articulated long arms and some of them look a lot more human the actually that design of the nanny bot is one of again one of my favorite visual effects 
not only in this movie, but in any movie. I believe they use this shot in the trailer. You see the moon rising up and and David is running through the woods. We see the nanny bot coming up full face right into the frame of the camera. She turns her head sideways and she looks in mm-hmm. another direction. And we just see like the front of her face and her ponytail because the rest of her head isn't filled in with robot parts. Mm-hmm. It's so, so cool. I don't think I could describe it as as well as seeing it gives you that effect. It's so cool. Yeah. I think anyone who's seen this movie knows what you're talking about. I think that's exactly the moment when my wife turned to me and was like, how do they do that? Yeah, it's it's such a good effect and it shows, it tells you so much of the story. There's a scene, there's actually a scene like this in Alita Battle Angel, uh, which came out last year, where where the hero, the robot hero has to like crawl through a junkyard and find very specific parts to replace parts of her that were destroyed or missing. And that's what a lot of these robots in the scene are doing. It starts with a truck dumping a bunch of spare parts or junk parts and they all flock towards it and start picking them up. Now, actually, that brings up a question that I had watching it this time, Conrado. Who was driving that truck? Who dumped those robot parts? Was that bait to attract them for the flesh fair for for Brendan Gleeson and his his hot air, his like floating moon balloon uh, in order to trap them? Or was that another robot maybe that had just you know, gotten a haul of good parts and it's very generously sharing them with all of these robots that are in need. How do you, who do you think dumped off those robot parts? Hmm, Interesting. Yeah, I think that makes more sense than what I originally thought. What I originally thought is that it's just a a company that is dropping all the stuff that is faulty or whatever. I don't, I think... The question is, then why would the company throw it in the woods? It would be like to be like, well, the robots to live in the woods would use it. But I don't know if that fits with the society that we've seen. So I think what you're saying makes more sense. Um, I think the idea that it's bait is very enticing to me because it's exciting. But I also wonder, like, would these robots be a little bit more alert about the fact wouldn't they know at this point that those things are obeyed after living in the woods for a while they might but but like conrado imagine imagine you're a robot that like your power source is getting low you need to find a replacement for your battery the thing that keeps you moving if you're that desperate and you know that you're taking a risk by going through this pile of junk you might take that risk if if you're close enough to the end of your power source you know you're absolutely right. I think my question is, are the robots frantic enough in the scene to suggest that? And I think maybe they are. I think they are pretty much like, you know, they're quickly going through it and kind of like, a, I'm going to find what I need. I'm going to get out of here before something happens. Yeah, some of them seem to have been in this situation before or in a similar situation before. They seem to know what they need to do to get out of this, or at least to tr- their best shot at survival. We uh, we see the Chris Rock robot, which has such a brief moment in this movie, but it 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 keeps me up at night. Like the <laughs> honestly, the fact that somebody built that Chris Rock robot, what is the purpose of it? What was its original purpose? I want to turn that question to you. I've always thought that maybe it was like supposed to be a comedian robot or something, like you know, like an MC robot. It brings up a new question of like, is entertainer are entertainers do they exist in this world or are they also being replaced by robots? What jobs are being outsourced and which ones aren't? 
it's also uh, a really good like little commentary on the entertainment industry that like you just get ground, ground up and spit out once you're past your prime, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Chris Rock is not the only cameo that I noticed in this movie. There's a lot of really cool little cameos. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, the, there's a soundbite of me talking through the activation words, the words that Monica uses to activate David and make him become alive or make him become sentient. And of course, I followed that up with the words that Baron Von Zemo uses to activate the Winter Soldier in Avengers. There's another Avengers connection in this movie. There's something, there's a brief single line in this movie, Conrado, that supports my argument that AI is in the Avengers universe. And it's <laughs> it's because hey. Phil Coulson shows up at some point, Clark Gregg, who's credited as super nerd, is one of Dr. Hobby's dudes. When they locate David, he says, yes, he's in one piece. It's his only line, but he's there and it's Clark Gregg and therefore it's Phil Coulson and therefore AI is in the MCU. Prove me wrong. Okay, I don't know that much about the MCU, but didn't he die at some point? Agent uh, sure, he sure, he sure did. Spoilers for the MCU, spoilers for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, <laughs> yes, Phil Coulson dies. And then, yes, there are six seasons of the show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. starring Phil Coulson and his S.H.I.E.L.D. team. So I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to say whether or not he okay. comes back to life, but there's six seasons of a show following okay. the point where he died in the MCU. All right. So it's, it sounds like it's not a prequel situation. So because you seem confident about this, so I'm going to assume he like either his day death was a fake out or he comes back somehow. So, OK. I... Or Dr. Hobby built a Phil Coulson bot to be one of his super nerd team. Right. Right. Well, I think the more likely scenario is that the MCU exists as a entertainment franchise in this world. And Dr. Hobby, who is a maniac, he just creates robots of his favorite characters. <laughs> Occam's razor. That, would, that makes a lot more sense. You're right. <laughs> and also because he's a maniac, his favorite character is Agent Coulson, right? Yep. <laughs> Not, you know, Vision or like another right. actual robot. Yeah. <laughs> Something I noticed about the Mecca in general, and Jude, Jude Law especially, but this happened a few times with David, is they tend to speak in rhyme. They tend to be kind of sing-songy when they talk, and they tend to talk in cliches. They tend to use a lot of colloquialisms and cliches, which I wondered, is that something we programmed into them because it makes them more human when they, you know, because if you talk to somebody, you can often get a sense of where they're from by the slang that they use or certain phrases that they pepper into conversation that are very common phrases that a lot of people or everybody kind of uses. So yeah, that's kind of my theory about it. it but what, what what do you think is the reason mm -hmm. that the, the robots rhyme, why they're sing-songy, why they talk this way and like cliches? And I think it's basically what you said. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the fact that we have, you know, like Siri's voice comes in all kinds of, not just languages, but also accents, right? You can have Siri in Australian English or British or American. It speaks to that, right? That you want to find those like kind of things that connect you with this robot that makes them less alien, right? That make them more like a human which is weirdly also the thing that becomes creepy about them in some way. So I think clearly, I think at this point, we have a good sense that the, the big challenge of robotics is to 
make them friendly enough for us to be want to come closer to them, but not so close to us that it becomes creepy, right? Um, the uncanny yes. valley sort of thing. And that's that's actually why Teddy is one of my favorite characters in this movie. Teddy represents a lot. Teddy does a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. He represents this point that we reached in technology before before Hobby and and his company achieved what they were ultimately trying to achieve. Teddy was something that we were able to build that is actually still a very like sturdy build of a robot. It's it it lasts over 2000 years, honestly. And it goes through quite a bit of damage and getting bounced around and tossed around. But Teddy, man, Teddy represents so many things every time he's on screen. The flesh fair is actually a really great example of something. When Teddy shows up at the flesh fair looking for David, there is a random guard or ticket taker or somebody that finds him and they pick him up and they're like, oh, do you belong to somebody? And they're very casual about Teddy. He's just like a carnival prize to them. You know, Mm -hmm. he is not threatening to them in any way. They pick him up, they look at him, they talk to him and they're like, what are you doing? What are you looking for? And he says, I need to find David. Sounding very, very much like the robot in 2001 Space Odyssey, Mm -hmm. I think might be part of why they named the character David. But anyway, Teddy gets like tossed, literally tossed back and forth to different carnival workers and they just carry him around. Nobody's threatened by him. Nobody's scared of him. The way that they are clearly scared of all of these robots that they put into cages, that they're melting with acid, that they're blasting out of cannons, right? That clearly comes from a place of fear, but Teddy, they're totally comfortable with. And and Mm -hmm. I think it's because Teddy is so far from the uncanny valley. He's so obviously a toy and a robot, even though he's, I would argue, a thinking, intelligent being, they don't see him mm-hmm. as that, so they're not threatened by him. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think this this brings back the idea that the voice or the way that the robots speak is the best way to get them to seem familiar and open yourself up to them, right? Because the way they look is going to affect you. But Teddy also speaks like a human, but that makes him more endearing. The fact that he doesn't look like a human is a huge asset for making him lovable, right? So I think trying to bring that humanity in something other than the appearance is important for them to to have the robots be accepted. And and Spielberg does a really good job of projecting onto inanimate objects. Even before this movie, he, that's something he's always been really good at. So Teddy is able to be a full character. There, there's a scene early on when, when Martin is playing with Teddy and David in his room and Martin sets up a game where he says, uh, we're both going to call him and we're going to see who he comes to first. And I think to Martin, it's just a curiosity. I don't think Martin actually has any pride in this. I don't think his ego is coming into play just yet. I think to him, it's a cur- it's a curious science experiment. He just wants to see what will Teddy respond to. And when he puts him to the test, you see on Teddy's face the conundrum that he's facing. Do I run to my master who's calling me, who um, is this kid that just got out of the hospital and needs a win? And uh, when he got out of the hospital, literally found out that his parents replaced him. So he really needs a win. Like, do I run to him? And I think Teddy realizes that's part of his decision. Also, what he's wrestling with is, well, David has been a friend to me and David has been loyal to me and I'm loyal to David these past few days. Do I run to David? And then Monica walks into the room 
And he just says like, mommy, save me. And just runs towards her to get out of it. Mm -hmm. But it's this really interesting moment where he's forced to make this choice. And you see this robotic teddy bear with very few, very limited facial expressions dealing with this conundrum in his head. And I think it's really fascinating that we get this much character out of Teddy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes me wonder what his programming might have been, right? Like, what is the things that he's supposed to prioritize? But you're right, he he seems to be kind of like a Jiminy Cricket kind of character in this iteration of Pinocchio, right? The consciousness is not maybe part of it, is not so front and center, but he's like a companion to David. Yeah. He does say when Monica uh, gives him to David... He does say, I am not a toy. Monica says he's a super toy. He was, he was Martin's. And Teddy objects. He says, I am not a toy. Yeah. What, do you think, what do you think Teddy views himself as? Oof, interesting. So what, what, do, what I'm getting from this is that Teddy is some sort of intelligent soul that has been trapped in this kind of teddy bear body, right? And, and, and it brings into question now the idea of like, how much can these robots learn and go beyond their original programming, right? I can imagine that Teddy was programmed to be a, a toy at first, but as he's experienced more, you know, life and, and his programming has changed and he has learned stuff, Right. And he has come to view himself as something different. Do you know what I'm referring to when I say monkey love you? Monkey need a hug. Is it from The Simpsons? I didn't think I know it. It's from an episode of Black Mirror. Oh, I haven't seen a lot of Black Mirror. So that makes sense. Okay, I'm not going to say any more because that that could be a big spoiler if you haven't seen it. So I'm just going to leave it at that. But oof. There is a creepy episode of Black Mirror that that dives into this question. I don't know if it answers it, but it dives into that that idea that you brought up of a thinking soul, a sentient self-aware being trapped inside of a limited mobility uh, robot body. Um, It's fascinating. Okay, which also highlights the degree to which the people, the humans, so to speak, in this movie, don't really care about this stuff, right? They couldn't care less whether or not Teddy's consciousness has gone beyond his his body form. And he needs Yeah, they won't even body. pay attention to it. They're not going to no. listen to him talk long enough to really consider that question. Right. If he says, I'm not a toy, you think, oh, it's such a funny joke. Like, it's a funny cute teddy bear, right? Uh, yeah. This movie yep. is so disturbing to me in so many levels, but in a great way. Like everything, it's so, everything is so cold and tragic, but in a so realistic, tossed off way. That's just the yep. way things are, which is so much how it happens in real life, that it's what makes it, it's almost like the Uncanny Valley itself, right? The movie comes so close to being horrible in the way that life is horrible, that it becomes very, very unsettling. Yeah. In particular, Conrado, I should be, I, sh- I shouldn't love Teddy or be as endeared to Teddy as much as I am. I personally should be super terrified of Teddy, and I would love to tell you why. Okay. I have a bit of a personal story I want to tell you. Perfect. Conrado, when I was, I think, two or three years old, I had this toy that was very popular in the 80s that was called a Teddy Ruxpin. And the design of Teddy is directly based on Teddy Ruxpin. I, I, I don't know if a lot of people know what a Teddy Ruxpin was, but it was this, this teddy bear with a tape deck in its back. And it came, when you bought it, it came with books that corresponded with tapes. So you would put the tape in and then you'd open up this picture book with Teddy Ruxpin and his adventures. And Teddy would sort of read 
from, you know, from the pre-recorded audio tape, he would read the book to you and sort of pause at different moments or ask you questions. And it's like this really cool interactive toy. His eyes lit up when he talked, his mouth mechanically opened and shut. So, you know, he was kind of lifelike for an 80s toy. My older sister got the clever idea to replace the tape in the back of my Teddy Ruxpin. So one night when I was going to sleep, instead of Teddy reading me a bedtime story, Teddy started telling me about how he was going to eat my fingers and toes the moment I fall asleep and all of this other really creepy, awful stuff. And there I am, a three-year-old, laying in my bed in the dark, hugging my, my fluffy Teddy, talking Teddy that helps me fall asleep, and it starts telling me it's going to eat me. <laughs> and I screamed, Conrado, and I threw this thing across the room, and my mom came running into the room, and my sister came in running behind her, laughing her head off. And to this day, by the way, if my sister listens to this episode, she is going to deny this story. She says that I'm making up every detail of this story. But listeners, I'm telling you, this is a true story. <laughs> Teddy Ruxpin is, is awful. But for some reason, Conrado, when I watch this movie... I love Teddy. I, I've gotten over my fear just by seeing Teddy on screen for two seconds because he's so endearing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you know in the, the bottom of your heart that nobody's going to mess with Teddy's tape, right? There's no tape to be messed with. Teddy's just himself. And if he loves you, he will love you forever. I think that's what it is. I think, I think it's the difference there. It's that um, what, what, what made me afraid as a child is that I loved Teddy and Teddy betrayed me in my eyes. Mm -hmm. Teddy betrayed that trust. He betrayed that love and uh, decided to capitalize on my human need to fall asleep. So I was afraid that he was going to just eat me when I fell asleep. This Teddy though, I, I feel confident watching it. David gives it a chance. David offers it friendship and it reciprocates. I do want to throw a wrench into that, though, Conrado, because I want to ask you about some of, the, some of the drawings that Monica finds when she is going to bring David back to the factory for destruction. She finds mm -hmm. a series of drawings that David made for her while he was waiting. And I want to talk about these because we see four of them. We, we see her holding a whole stack of them, but the camera shows us four of them and we see what they're, what's written on them. Did you happen to notice these as well? Mm-hmm. Yep. Did they stand out? Did any of them stand out to you? This. Yes. I didn't write them down. I hope that you did because you've taken such thorough notes, Louis. This is uh, fantastic. Uh, yes. I think he, he, a lot of them say like, I love you. I love mommy and I love Henry and whatever. And a lot of them seem to end with like love mommy and henry but not teddy or like this and this but not teddy and yes i think that's where you're going right yeah and this is fascinating the way it progresses so i wrote down that we see four of these notes in order so the first one dear mommy teddy is helping me write to you i love you and i love teddy Let's, let's start there. I have so much to say about this. Teddy is helping me write to you. We were just talking about how savvy mm -hmm. Teddy is. We were talking about what Teddy knows, what Teddy thinks, what Teddy observes in the world around him, right? Teddy knows what's going on with David and he knows what's going to happen to David. Mm -hmm. He knows that David needs to appeal to mommy and in order to save his own life, Teddy yeah. helps him start writing these letters and this is the first one that we produce. Jesus Christ. And, and Teddy, he is not, I, I, nothing makes me think that this toy was designed to teach children how to write. So Teddy has learned how to write by living in the world. Like going back to the idea that he's learned. He's learned to write. He's learned to bargain for his life. 
he's learned to appeal to human emotions in order to not be destroyed or messed with, right? He's learned to sew. He, mm-hmm. he like sews himself back up. The second letter, dear mommy, guess how much I love you. That's it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> then, oh, and another, well, here's what's remarkable here though. Between the first and second letters and then the later ones, they start with whole words are written with a different color crayon. Later on, he alternates the color of crayon every letter. So it's mm-hmm. like his his drawings themselves of these words and letters are becoming more complex as each one progresses. Here's the third one. Dear mommy, I'm really our son and I hate Teddy. He is not real like, and it ends there. We don't know what was supposed to follow the word like, but it's just, I'm really our son and I hate Teddy. He is not real like. I believe the next word would have been us. He is not real like us, but I'm just speculating. Mm-hmm. The fourth and final letter that we see, dear mommy, I'm your little boy and so is Martin, but not Teddy. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think I have some thoughts. I think I'm I am going into the theory that this is Teddy is helping him to argue yep. for his life. Yep. And he's saying, like, you have to tell you're not, you know, you're you look like them. You you can appeal to them in that way, in a way that I could not, which makes it even more heartbreaking. Everything. Teddy is so savvy that he knows. David, in order for you to appeal to these humans and their sympathy, you need to you need to let them think that you distinguish yourself as a more enlightened, more conscious being than me. Mm-hmm. And it takes a level of, of self-consciousness and enlightenment to realize that and to convey that to a child. Mm-hmm. So Teddy is operating on such a crazy advanced level. Yeah. That his ability to help David save his own life is such a complicated thing that I think comes through in a very subtle way in the telling of, of the order of these drawings that, that David makes. 100%. He, this, is, this is a revelation to me, the degree to which Teddy is another tragic character. Like clearly he knows all of this stuff and he also knows that he can't get away with it, that he's trapped in the body that was given to him and there's no way that he could appeal in the same way that David does to say like, I am a human, you know, I'm the next level of robot. I can be accepted into your society. Absolutely. We, okay, after after our adventures at the Flesh Fair, Jude Law, so Gigolo Joe and David, they escape. I, I wrote down here, I love the moment when Jude Law is doing his, he's convincing David to take him along as a companion and to journey with him to Rouge City. They're sort of in this swamp and he's like tap dancing. It, it, it's very, it's framed very much like a classic. I, I don't know how to describe it. Like, a, like there's a very, it's something very classic Hollywood to it. There, mm-hmm. There's a lot of classic Hollywood to Gigolo Joe's character very deliberately, but something about this scene and the moonlight in the background and the little tap number that he does. I, I don't know what it is. Can you, can you put your finger on, on what that is? Cause you, it seems like you got kind of got the same nostalgia from it. Yeah. I mean, he seems to be programmed to be kind of like a Gene, Gene Kelly sort of dancing robot. Like, you know, that's kind of supposed to be his sex appeal when he, when he plays music, it's usually from that era. And it's that sort of like those classic uh, swing Hollywood standards, right? So I think, I guess that's just the type of robot that he is supposed to be, like the way that he's supposed to appeal to his clients. 
Um, it makes sense, kind of like the smooth talker sort of thing. Always yeah. like if you if you put a cigarette in your mouth, he's the guy that will always have a lighter, like like right right there. Yeah. Yep, one hundred percent. And I'm sure there's like a a, ro- a sex robot for every little kink and desire, right, in, in this world. So yeah, he does mention when they get to Rush City, he talks a little bit about the variety of lover bots. Like he has some criticisms for the ones that were designed in Sweden and they don't speak English, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of interesting how his he has his own insecurities about the way he was built, what he's capable of, the level that he can aspire to, and how he compares himself to other robots in his profession. It's very interesting that he has ambitions, he has career goals. I also wrote down that uh, this is this is a fantastic performance by Jude Law, speaking of like robot performances. Haley Joel Osment is pulling a lot of weight, but Jude Law, oh my gosh. When he does that little tap number, there's a moment where he just freezes and stands completely still for a moment. And it's such I know it's just a human just standing there, not choosing not to move, but it's so robotic. Usually we describe robots in the way that they move unlike humans, that they're herky-jerky or mm-hmm. there's something noticeable that's a little bit not smooth or not natural about the way they move. This was an example of a robot freezing in place to make a dramatic point. And it was more human than than anything I saw him do actively. Uh, I also wrote down Jude Law. Uh, Jude Law is a master of the dramatic. Pause. (laughs) (laughs) He uh, had this line that was great where where David mentions he has to find a woman. And he says, I know women. No two are ever alike. And after they've met me, no two are ever the same. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good performance. I think I think he got um, some nominations for that. I don't think yeah. he got the Oscar, but he got, I think, maybe a Golden Globe or something like that. Okay. Did uh, Robin Williams get any sort of nomination for this movie? <laughs> for, his, for his Dr. No cameo? Um, I don't think he did, not that I'm aware of. Let's talk about Dr. No a little bit. The uh, the 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 weird slow search engine that they mm-hmm. used uh, to to try to complete their journey. Tell me about Dr. No. Yeah, so my theory is that Dr. No is a version of Wikipedia that is not free to everyone, right? Like it's not, you know, how you go on Wikipedia and say, please donate because we want to keep it free and advertising free. So this is a different world in which that didn't work out. People did not donate and now it is a business. So if you want to have this knowledge, you got to pay for it. That's right. And it it gives him seven questions and it culminates in this poem that uh, I wanted to ask you, since you're more well-versed in fairy tales, the come away, oh human child uh, poem that he, that he finds, is that made up for this movie or is that a reference to something? Uh, good, good question. I wish I knew. I think it's, um, I think it's made for this movie. I, that does not uh, ring a bell for me, but I have to say when I was a kid, all the fairy tales I read were in Spanish because I was living in South America. So maybe there's a translation thing that I'm not picking up, but my guess is that it's made for this movie. I just looked it up. It's from The Stolen Child by W.B. Yeats. Okay. Uh, from 18, in the 1880s. Wow, long time ago. Is it a poem or, or, a, or a story? 
It's a poem, uh, The Stolen Child. It's a little long, so I won't read the whole thing. But but yeah, it, what precedes it is where dips the rocky highland of sleuth wood in the lake. There lies a leafy island where flapping herons wake. The drowsy water rats, there we've hid our fairy vats full of berries and of reddest stolen cherries. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters and the wild with a fairy hand in hand for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. So it seems to be about a changeling, which is like uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream, right? Um, the that's what like Titania and Oberon are employing their fairies. They're employing Puck, I think, to switch out a baby, a royal baby, for a changeling, and that's very much the story of AI that Martin gets switched out for this changeling, this automaton. So it's very, very much on theme. My major question, though, when they when they meet Dr. No and they hear this poem, Dr. Hobby later admits to David that, that he says that was the only time we interfered. That was the only time that we sort of placed a clue in front of you to help you reach us. Mm-hmm. I believe that based on his performance of the way that he's talking to David in that scene, I believe that he's genuine. I believe that he is telling him the truth that at that point the only thing that, that he and his team did to, to recover David was to place that little clue into Dr. No, assuming that he would eventually end up there. Mm-hmm. My question, though, is how much of the situation did he orchestrate in the first place? How, how yeah, go ahead. Yeah, first of all, fully psychotic, right? This man yes. is clearly a psycho who's like, instead of just telling the kid, come over here, he puts a, like a clue. He's like Kevin Spacey in Seven or something, right? Like he's playing like a million steps ahead and just putting these like weird clues. So I would not be surprised if he has orchestrated more than that because how would he know that they're going to go to Dr. No, right? I mean, Mr. is it Dr. No? Yeah. It's Dr. No, there is nothing he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so how would would he know that, right? Like, I don't know. I I think this guy is like, he's clearly a megalomaniac who thinks that he can play around with everything in this world. So I'm not surprised. I, you know, where I think it started was, I don't think, (laughs) but there, but you could make an argument for this. I don't think that it goes as far back as he created Martin's illness or made Martin sick and kept him in a coma, but... But I believe that the moment they sent the, the robot home with Henry and it imprinted on Monica and Monica imprinted on it, the moment he got that news that they decided to keep this robot, I think that's when he was sitting on the cure to whatever Martin's illness was. And that's the moment he cured their kid to see what would happen when they've already accepted this surrogate, this replacement for their child. And hey, let's see what happens when we cure their kid and send them back home. Let's just toss a wrench into the whole thing. Do you think there's any merit to that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't put I wouldn't put anything past this man at this point for a megalomaniac boss to just want to mess with his employees' like life to yeah. an insane degree. Introduce an element of chaos and just see what happens, right? Yeah, let's just ruin this man's life and marriage and see what happens. Well, here's the thing. The way that the doctor was t- was talking to Henry in the first place, I fully believe this is possible because like, man, th- as soon as that doctor opened his mouth, I was like, get this doctor out of here. <laughs> get him out. 
he's like, what does he say? Your, your son is beyond our science, but your wife, uh, I think he says like, we could still save her or like Mm -hmm. something really condescending and, and just ridiculous, you know, not including her in the conversation in any way, in any respectful way, (laughs) just talking about her as though like, well, her depression that she's very understandably going through and dealing with in her own way, let's, let's not try to actually like talk to her. Let's not try to give her any agency. Let's just, Hey, I have this idea. Let's cure your woman wife by doing this thing to her rather than getting her consent first. Mm -hmm. Right. Even in the future. Yeah, Even in the future, doctors so hate women. <laughs> I was saying that, of course, women are so sentimental. You know, this woman just wants to cry next to her kid. She won't understand all these reasonable doctor things that I'm going to talk about with, with right. the dad. Yeah, horrible. But, you know. Yeah, and, and in that scene where they're juxtaposing the emotional, dedicated mother, like sitting next to her, her son in a coma, reading to him, clearly the way they frame it, like this is something she does very regularly. She's very excited, looks forward to doing this all the time. She gets a very strong sense of fulfillment from doing it. But while she's doing this, they're having this conversation literally right over her shoulder, right behind her back about, about her, about how to cure her, how to stop this madness. And one of the things that supports my theory that Dr. Hobby is a complete maniac and was timing the cure for Martin. Henry brings up with the doctor some new medicine or medicinal practice that he heard about, some experimental thing with nano machines attacking viruses. I didn't write it down. I didn't get the full language of it, but it's definitely implying, hey, there's something in development. You know, whatever your son has, degenerative fantasy movie disease, there's a cure for that coming down the pipeline. I do think that Martin was given that cure at the most convenient slash inconvenient possible moment because Hobby is a maniac. (laughs) Yeah. This is going to be a new thing, I think. Going full Hobby is like when you like totally destroy a person's life just for your amusement. (laughs) Did you notice that the David bots at the end on the box, it's written that they have a five-year full-service warranty? Also, the scene... This is something that I was also talking about with my wife when we were watching. The scene in which Haley Joel Osment walks into that room and it's like a bunch of dolls that resemble him hanging around. We were thinking as a kid, having to be in that room and play that scene, I don't know what I would have done. So when he, yeah, yeah, as the actor, Haley Joel yeah. Osment, walking into a room of Haley Joel Osment's, when part of your life has, up until you became successful, I bet he went on a few auditions where like you you've you've gone on an audition right you, mm-hmm. you've been in like an, an audition room it's a bizarre experience when like you get to maybe a second or third round of auditions and the whole waiting room kind of looks like you like you're <laughs> sitting next to someone who kind of talks like you you know and it's it's bizarre so imagine being that actor going through that experience you get cast in this movie and now professional artists have made a room full of you that you walk into and react to yeah Um, soon he will be replaced by the robot version of himself 
I mean, we're doing it with Grand Moff Tarkin, with yeah. with Tupac, with Princess Leia. The five-year warranty thing is crazy to me because he lives for 2,000 years or more on his own, like while being damaged and repairing himself. Like, it's crazy that they only have a five-year warranty when, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, they, they, they naturally seem to last a lot longer. I guess, I guess if the robot eats spinach after five years, you're out of luck. Yeah. So <laughs> when, oh, when he does have that strong reaction to the, the Haley Joel Osment that's in the library. What does he say? Is this where they make you wait or something? And he says, this is where they make you read. When he gets, he flies off the handle and he's like, I'm David, I'm David. He picks up a chair and smashes the other David's head off and screams, I'm David. Conrado, would that have eventually happened to Martin at some point? Interesting question, because something that I also wrote down in my notes is at some point, Henry talking to Monica says that if he's capable of love, he's also capable of hate when talking about David. And I, went, and I wrote that down and I wonder, is he capable of hate? And then later comes the scene in which clearly he's incredibly threatened by the idea that he's not unique. Once again, Dr. Hobby has put in something in the programming to make things more tragic for this robot, right? I mean, and I don't know. I mean, I guess if he felt like Martin is getting in the way of him and mommy being together, he might kill him. And that's why I, I say it's not love, it's obsession, because hate is the same thing too. It's, it's, it's an obsession, right? In the opposite direction. And that's, that's a really good point that he's, if he's equally capable of this level of passion for and expressing that as love, then it stands to reason that he's level, he's capable of the same level of passion in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And we see that when he knocks this thing's head off. And actually, he starts to become kind of aggressive to everybody at that point. I feel like David starts to become very defensive. He's mm-hmm. he's realized how much he's backed into a corner. His survival instincts are starting to kick in. And there like there's a moment when the synthetic aliens are talking to him and he says in a creepy creepy way something like you know you you said that you want to make me happy that like you're concerned with my happiness and then he's he like gets all serious for a second. He's like then you know what you have to do. And they're like, yeah, no, no, no. We're going to give you what you want, kid. It's cool. It's cool. Don't worry. (laughs) Like, even they seem to be a little bit like, we don't want to piss this kid off. I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that happens when you go out in the real world and you get hardened by the reality, right? He was sheltered in this house with mommy all day long. And all of a sudden, and you know, very human thing that is going on in this movie, the idea of going out into the real world and how we're all like these little children who just want to be loved and and are pretending to be adults and pretending to have our shit together. And so, yeah. Yeah. We're all just sort of pretending until, until the day that it becomes real. Right. Or at least that's what we're hoping for is that one day it's just going to feel like you're actually, you've actually reached that plateau. Yeah. That's even more than I was, than I was thinking about, but that, just hit me as well this idea of like you know thinking that something's gonna come someday right that the someday you will be fulfilled that someday it'll be enough that you will reach your goal and it's kind of what happens with david his only goal is to be loved by mommy and obviously he's never going to reach a level of love that he's going to be satisfied with Um, there's a question about what happens in the last scene right i don't think that he's satisfied by it but rather he 
finally puts into perspective, okay, this is no longer a possibility. So I have no reason to exist. I think I agree with that take on it 100%. There's also, there's the moment when he is in the amphibicopter and he's looking through the glass at the, at the ferry and he's begging her for two millennia to make him a real boy. Finally, the ocean freezes, the aliens come down there. Uh, I wrote down that this is like, all filmed like the ending of this movie is like the beginning of Wally. Everything's very blocky and square, and these robots are like excavating in in perfect squares. and And they they do this like death this visually this Death Star trench run shot where they're flying in on their square ship. Uh, I also wrote down their square ships look very much like the hard drive at the beginning that they take out of Sheila's brain, the demo bot that they take out of her forehead. It's this square shape. Dr. Hobby holds it up and talks about the processing unit and the memory in it. And that's exactly what these alien ships look like later on. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when they get down to the bottom of the ocean, they free David. He gets to the statue and it crumbles in his Mm -hmm. hands. And at that moment... He snaps back to reality. He looks around him and he's surrounded by dozens of aliens. And it's really interesting the way, the, not just Haley Joel Osment's performance in that moment, but if you watch that scene again, he is completely, singularly focused and obsessed on this ferry. These aliens literally land a ship next to him. They surround him and they're all just standing around and watching. He doesn't even see them. He doesn't even notice them. He doesn't even process them. This is somebody that's been through the flesh fair, somebody that's been chased by police trying to bring him back to a factory to destroy him. He knows what's at stake, or at least he used to know what's at stake, but he's so singularly obsessed and focused that it's not until the the object of his obsession is destroyed in front of him that he even becomes aware of his surroundings and knows that he's surrounded by dozens of aliens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I want to turn the tables because this is robots versus dinosaurs. And I want to ask you one question. I thought that I had. Let's do it. Is at this point, at this point in the movie, 2000 years in the future, is David a dinosaur to these aliens? I want to talk about this. That's such a good question. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, he is. Yes, he is, because they dig down underneath the quote unquote like sedimentary layers of the ocean, the frozen ocean, to retrieve this artifact from their history. Conrado, one of the reasons why I was an obnoxious eight-year-old the first time I saw this movie and didn't really get it and didn't really like it the first time is because I was so egocentric when I first saw it. And I think that's a, I, I, th- I think that's not something I'm faulting my 18-year-old self for or any 18-year-old for, but I, I was so egocentric. I assumed the ending of this movie was telling me these are evolved humans, that this is the next step of human evolution, that we turn into these tall, thin, weird-looking alien-like creatures, and this is how we look and this is how we talk. I did not pick up on the fact that these are not humans. They are the super-advanced mechas built by the previous generation of mechas, which were built by the previous generation of mechas, which were built by what which were built by whichever generation of mechas survived the freezing of the oceans. So mm-hmm. they are David's evolution. They're not our, they're not Dr. Hobby's evolution. And that's a really important distinction for the ending of the movie and the significance yeah. of the ending of the movie, right? Yeah, can mm-hmm. you speak on that a little bit? 100%. The first time I saw it as well, I thought they were aliens or something, but they're not. They are the mechas of the future. And David is to them, if not quite a dinosaur, he's at least like a like a prehistoric man would be to us, right? Like Lucy yes. or something, like a Homo 
Erectus or something. I don't know. Now here's the difference, Conrado. In our science fiction, in Jurassic Park is the best example of this. We decided that we've achieved the technology to, to clone dinosaurs. We can dig up fossils, but that's not good enough. We can put them together and reconstruct them in a museum so we can see what they might have looked like and speculate what they look like with flesh and bone. Still not good enough. Once we achieve the technology to clone them and give them animation, give them quote unquote life again, we do that to put them in a park and, and, and charge money to see them, Right. We use them for our purpose. We're not resurrecting them. I, I thought about this. I haven't covered the movie Jurassic Park yet, but I had a thought about it recently in the context of this podcast that each dinosaur that they are putting in the park is literally a clone of a dinosaur that had a life up to the point where it was buried under rock. So what if like they're taking, let's say they, they clone four T-Rexes, right? two males, two females, and they put them in the wrong pens. Like they put the wrong spouses in the wrong pens. <laughs> These were clones. These are clones of dinosaurs that had lives. And now we're just like, eh, whatever. This one goes here. This one goes there. So here's the difference. It may sound ridiculous that I'm talking about Jurassic Park <laughs> in that context, but in AI, these future aliens dig up their version of a dinosaur. They dig up David from the bottom of the ocean and they make the decision that they want to make him happy. They want to give him what he wants. They, they state, and they sort of talk amongst themselves about the fact that they have this goal of scientific understanding, that they are excited about the, the existence of this robot and the discovery of this robot. They're excited about what it will tell them and what secrets they can discover from it and how much it'll be a bridge to their understanding of the world before everything else happened. But David doesn't want that, and they respect that. They yeah. actually respect that, which yeah. I don't think humans would do. Yeah, I guess, uh, what would be the closest thing to that? Clone. <laughs> right. But I was thinking if we were able to clone someone who was present at like Jesus yeah. crucifixion or something, right? Oh, like we want to yeah. know everything about this. So tell us, but the person is like, nah, I just want to chill. What would we do? I don't know. It's a great question. I don't, I, don't I, I posit we would not be satisfied with Jesus. If we resurrected Jesus, if scientists cloned Jesus, I'm going to lose a lot of listeners with just that <laughs> sentence. But if scientists, if our scientists cloned Jesus one day, and they said, Jesus, we want you to tell us the truth about the Bible. You know, you can clear up all of the debates. I don't think anybody on either side of it would be satisfied with Jesus going, you know what? I just, I, I just want to enjoy modern comforts. I just, I'm curious about what you guys have in this era. I don't care about the past. I don't want to relive that. That was traumatic for me. I just want right. to like try Oreos and Doritos and Mountain Dew. So give me some of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be... Also, I, I have a question about this this uh, mechas from the future and their okay. obsession. Uh, clearly, they have evolved in, in intelligence with the yeah. generations, right? They've become more and more scientifically adept and they have created all this technology, but they are still looking for the meaning of life is what basically what they seem to be saying. So I think that's interesting. I, I, I was wondering about that. Like, is is that perhaps an egocentric fault of the movie to assume that a machine would have the same philosophical concerns that humans do? Are we like projecting our humans' needs into machine needs? Or is it because we began their programming that they can't shake it? Or, or what do you think is going on? 
Yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. I think it's more the last thing that you said there where we programmed it into them. I think it I think part of their core programming is one of their what, what, what is it? The, the three laws of robotics, right? But this mo- this movie, I'd say like one of the first laws of robotics for these mechas is not Asimov's rules, but like it's the, this movie establishes its own rules. And one of the first ones is self-discovery because everything, every mecha in this movie has that element of self-discovery, of trying of of wanting to fulfill its purpose that's what distinguishes them is that they're not only programmed with a purpose they're programmed to want to carry it out gigolo Mm. joe wants to do a good job he wants to please his clients he wants to be the best comfort companion that he can possibly be he's proud of that and he talks a lot about it and like his pride in his work and the things that it took to get to him to get to that level and his notoriety, you know, women ask me by name. And Teddy is also, you know, Teddy seems to have some pride in his ability to be a friend to David, to carry that artifact of the lock of hair that he needs for so long. Yeah, it seems like, and David seems like he is obsessed with fulfilling his purpose of becoming a real child, of being the most perfect object of love for the mother that lost her object of love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think if we make, I guess, what would be a Buddhist perhaps interpretation of the movie, then you have this want being the big tragedy of the creation of these robots, right? The biggest flaw that we humans gave our creations was to give them this completely debilitating want that we have in our lives. This idea that we need to find something that fulfills our lives, that our lives have meaning and we have a purpose. If we hadn't given them to the robots, they would just be existing. I don't know what it's like to be an animal, but I assume that that's kind of the kind of existence that animals have. What would that be with intelligence? Interesting to to think about. But definitely this need for something is the thing that, that makes these robots existential and kind of, to me, a tragic figures. Yeah, I don't think we ever see any instance whatsoever in this movie of a robot harming another robot for personal gain. We only see them being compassionate towards each other. We only see them helping each other, even at their own, to their own personal detriment. The, actually, the one, the one exception I can think of, and I, and I, I just want to say it out loud because I don't think it's a real exception, is Joe, when he realizes that David is actually dragging him to his death, uh, when they escape the cage at the, for, mm-hmm. at the flesh fair, Joe says, oh, how fortuitous that I ran into you because we're escaping this cage. But mm-hmm. then he realizes oh, wait, he he won't let go of my hand and he's dragging me to my execution and he's trying to like yank his arm free. Mm-hmm. He's really not like, neither of the, uh, David's yeah. not doing this to Joe on purpose. He's not leading Joe to his destruction on purpose. And Joe isn't trying to harm David or even like getting mm-hmm. violent to try yeah. to free himself. No. He's kind of just like making some effort to get away, but still yeah. won't, go, won't cross a line. He, there's a mm-hmm. line he won't cross. Self-preservation. I would say the big, the big exception is obviously David with the other David. Oh yes. Oh, that yes, is yes. that is the huge exception, right? And that's huge I think, exception. And that is, I think, what brings this whole conversation to a next level of like, what is the intelligence doing to these robots? Yeah, and you know what, da- uh, Teddy witnesses David doing this and doesn't judge him for it, and I think that's interesting. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. There's a point after which I would argue none of it actually happens and that um, it's all a dream. Do you take the ending of this movie to be a literal interpretation or do you take it to be David's dream? I, I am generally against this sort of dream thing when it's not clear that it's a dream. So I take it literally that that this is what happened. Or it could be, I guess it could be a ideal retelling of what happened. But I do think that David gets this last day with Monica, if that's what you're asking. Maybe well, the way I, it's, it's presented, it's a little more idyllic than it actually went down. But what do you think? Do you think it's a, a vision of his expectations of what that day will be? I have one piece of evidence in the movie, because I'm only using what the movie supports. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not using any meta-knowledge or interviews with any like of the creators of it. I'm just using the, what the movie is showing me. And there's one piece of evidence in the movie that tells me that uh, pretty much the last 20 to 25 minutes of it are all a dream. And it's when David falls forward off of the, the edge of a, that building into the ocean, he starts to sink down towards the seabed and a school of fish notice him and surround him. And they, mm. m- from what I saw, it was like they were investigating, this might be food. You know, they probably don't, don't, don't get a lot of organic matter falling into their waters. So they tried to like pick at him first, realized he wasn't food. And then they swirl around him. And it's very, very fairy tale, very visually magical. The way that they, the, the school of fish surrounds him and carries him through the water. They're like lifting him, like, like leaves on the wind through the water. And then he, they settle him down at just the right spot at the mm-hmm. bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. where Joe is able to find him with the amphibicopter. Yeah. So I think from that point, it's not realistic what the fish are doing. It's not visually realistic. It looks like magic. And I think from that point, we're supposed to understand as an audience that we've entered David's dream and the movie actually ends with him sitting on the edge of that building, staring off into the distance. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a question for you then. The age-old question, do androids dream of electric sheep, right? Is <laughs> David even capable of having, does he dream when he sleeps? Does he sleep? Does he dream? Is this a vision? Is this a hallucination? Like, Also, if this is his dream, it's a really horrible kind of dream, right? Like of being trapped in the in the ocean for millions of years, waiting for the mom to come back for just one day. Like he, it seems like a little self defeatist if it's like your your biggest wish in the world. Although maybe, maybe it's a dream, not a wish. Maybe, but maybe that's the difference between robot dreams and human dreams. You know, maybe they're more realistic. <laughs> they're more realistic. Maybe his dream is based on his lived experiences. You know, he's. He knows that he had to go through a journey and a struggle to get to where he is. So even in his dream, his dream self still has to go through this very hard thing in order to get what he truly wants at the end of it. I think there's a lot of arguments to be made either way. And it's just really how you interpret the ending of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say I was looking for that fish thing as a as a clue to like, okay, is this movie no longer grounded in reality? where these fish, you know, because the fish couldn't possibly carry his weight and they don't even bother visually to make it look like that's what they're doing. They make it look like they're creating a current by swimming around him in a very magical way and and carrying him aloft on the current. Yeah. In a, and, and it's, I don't think it's meant to look realistic. I don't think it's meant to look like this is what's literally happening right now, but even knowing that or even even positing that theory, I like this being a literal ending. I like the idea that robots survived the freezing of the oceans. 
they continued to improve upon themselves, and they continue to retain their compassion towards one another, which we see in them granting David his final wish. I want to believe that that's the ending of the movie, because otherwise, this movie is bleak. It starts out bleak and uh, very critical of society, and I don't want it to end that way. I want it to end on an optimistic note. Hmm. So do you think the ending is optimistic? I think regardless of whether it's a dream or not, the ending is essential to understanding the movie and to its message, right? But I see it as a deeply, deeply bittersweet ending, right? Like it's a moment of triumph that is going to be gone almost as soon as it began, considering how long David has been waiting for it, right? It is something that is deeply existential and, and, and dreadful to me is this idea of all these moments that bring us joy and happiness. They all seem to be gone so quickly. And like, it's also the idea of being confronted with the, the idea that you one day will die and will be remain that way for like the rest of eternity and your life will be just a, a glimpse. Yeah, I think if you consider that people often, one of the reasons that they want to have children is this might be a this might sound very controversial, but I don't mean for it to sound this way. Um, but I, I do think that one of the human impulses to to have children is that you can only accomplish so much in your lifetime, in the time that you're given on this earth. There's only so much you can accomplish. But if you start to work towards something and your children learn from you and they have the same values that you do and they want to achieve a similar dream, they can carry your work forward. They can bring your accomplishments or build on top of your accomplishments into the next generation. Robots represent something that you know, humans realize we have limitations. There's a certain point where we are going to become extinct. Either the planet won't be inhabitable anymore, or we won't be able to survive out on the planet anymore. And if we don't either get off of the planet and achieve uh, the ability to live in space and live on other planets, our next best option is to create the next generation of quote unquote, living sentient beings, robots, that will carry our legacy forward. If you look at this movie as from a, from a standpoint of do humans survive, do humans evolve, do humans make it? Ultimately no we don't, but I don't think that I don't think that's the worst thing. I think I think that the fact that we're able to build something that represents us, but only the best parts of ourselves, only the best parts of our intelligence and very importantly our compassion that is retained in these particular future robots. I think that's a beautiful future, that we, we, we recognize our own failings, but we've built the caretakers of the planet that will inherit it from us, and they'll do a better mm. job. Yeah, that's what I was going to add, that, and hopefully they'll do a better job of that. You know, the ending of this movie also reminds me of, to bring this back to dinosaurs, so this is my favorite theory about dinosaurs, which I don't know if it holds up scientifically, but here it is. It's the idea that it's been so long since dinosaur time, there is a possibility that there was a whole level of civilization to the dinosaur past that we are not aware of. This is going off of the premise that if we were exterminated today, every trace of us could be potentially destroyed and people in the future or like creatures in the future would have no idea that we had buildings and et cetera, et cetera. So I love to think that the past of the dinosaurs was resembled like the 
like the most accurate representation of the dinosaur past is, is I don't know if you ever saw that show Dinosaurs, which was a sitcom from the 90s in which there was like a bunch of dinosaur costumes. It was a Jim Henson creation. So I love to think that that's what the Jurassic uh, Cretaceous periods looked like. And there was a bunch of dinosaurs going to work and hanging out. And speaking of that, the ending of that show, I don't know if you've seen the last episode, it's very, very bleak and because it suggests that all your favorite characters are about to go extinct. And actually because of like uh, climate situations, because their civilization has kind of destroyed the planet. It's their own fault. It's actually Earl Sinclair's fault. It's our main protagonist's fault that they're all going to die. It's so dark. It's so dark, but it's so fascinating. If you ever want, if you, I don't know if you do television on this podcast, but if you ever want to talk about that episode, I will come back to talk about I've, that. I think we need to talk about that episode. It was suggested by another friend of the show that we do the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where her, her mom starts dating a dad bot, like a stepdad bot. So that might come up in a future episode. Conrado, another thing I want to talk about is CNN recently released an article written by uh, Katie Hunt. I have, it, I have it up here. And I linked to this article on, my t- on the Robots vs. Dinosaurs Twitter page. We've also, I think it's on our Facebook page as well. So you can check out this article. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes too for this episode. This article, the headline is, This previously unknown mass extinction gave rise to dinosaurs, scientists say. And it it goes on to talk about what was on the planet before the dinosaurs, what got wiped out that allowed them to take over. I'm going to be honest with you, until I read this article, I had never given a single thought to that. I think this, this goes back to looking at my very egocentric, limited view of the world at large, of the timeline of history at large. Like if we weren't involved in it, I, I can't really imagine myself there. So like, we don't, we don't have something, we have the Flintstones, we have that show Dinosaurs. We don't have something where we've anthropomorphized single cell bacteria or the amorphous blobs of amphibious creatures or whatever that, were, that, that dominated the planet before dinosaurs. So we don't really think about it in fun, casual terms. But dinosaurs are a very easy reference point. They're so otherworldly and cool looking, and we can ascribe so much of our fears and projections and hopes onto them. But yeah, this was eye-opening news to me. Check out that article for more of that. But like, it's like you said, we, only, we can only speculate on what they were like. This is something I, I like to think about a lot. We, you and I, we live in the year 2020. We've got Facebook, we've got Twitter, we've got all of these digital imprints, these digital the artifacts of every moment of our lives. I have a digital journal of almost every month, if not day, of what I did on this day of my life. If I were an archaeologist and I was studying medieval times and I was at a dig site and I found like a piece of plate armor, That'd be awesome. If I found like one bit of a clay jar, that would be awesome because now I have two pieces of a story that I can speculate and I can put things together. And I have to spend a lot of time in the lab. I have to compare it to other artifacts that were found in other parts of the world. I have to do a lot of speculation to complete this story, right? And then just spend a lot of time doing that. If I'm an archaeologist 5,000 years from now and I'm looking at the year 2020, Conrado, if I just picked you or if I just picked me, I wouldn't have enough time in my own lifetime to sift through every single digital artifact that you left behind to complete the, the, the story of what your life was like. I would have too much information that there's not enough time to even analyze all of it. 
So it's kind of this weird conundrum that I'm sure like, I would love to interview an actual archaeologist. I interviewed a paleontologist a few weeks ago about like dinosaur fossils, but I would love to talk to an archaeologist about this. Like, is that a dilemma that archaeologists in the future are going to have where they'll, they'll have more data than they have time to analyze about our current mm. time period, if we even last right. that long? And the other question is like, if the digital things persist, right? Because it's, it's not a physical object. So, you know, something, someone wipes out the, uh, the internet or whatever, and it's gone forever. Yeah, that's right. Like, let's say a server room just, mm-hmm. you know, gets flooded or some other natural disaster happens or it gets destroyed or uh, overheats and burns down. Like there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of ways that those digital footprints can be completely lost to the sands of time. Uh, just like everything else, it's it's yeah. it's kind of bleak, but it's also kind of I think it puts things into perspective. I think this movie does a lot to put things into perspective. I agree, one hundred percent. Conrado, do you have any final thoughts about this movie before we move on to talking about AI two Teddy's Revenge? <laughs> I will definitely see AI two Teddy's Revenge. Um, <laughs> I love that. My final thoughts is that it's. Uh, this movie is incredible. It's my, I think it's the best Steven Spielberg movie for me personally. And he's made a lot of great ones. I am a big fan of him. And I think this movie, like you said, puts things into perspective. It's incredibly affecting when you're watching it. It is so emotional for me. A lot of feelings. And it also has a lot of things to think about afterwards. I would say if you are one of those people who has seen this movie once when you were 18 and you thought it was dumb or whatever, to give it another shot because you might be surprised and find that it's actually a great, great movie. I completely agree. This is, Jurassic Park is my favorite Steven Spielberg movie, but this is up there. This is high on the list. AI is definitely one of my favorite sci-fi movies in any category, just across the board. It is one of the most philosophical sci-fi movies I've ever seen. It's one of the most visually gorgeous sci-fi movies I've ever seen. It's so thought-provoking. It's so existential. And I've seen it at this point in my life, I've probably seen it about a dozen times, probably like 10 10 to 15 times. And every single time I watch it, especially when I'm taking notes, there's, there's something new that I discover about not only the movie, but it makes me discover something new about myself every time. And that, that is very powerful. That's something that, that I think movies have the power to do that we do give them a lot of credit for it, but I don't think it can be overstated how much, how much they're capable of doing that for us. And speaking of like movies as a digital footprint, preserving our timeline, there's another, there's another movie that my friend Jason and I reviewed for this podcast called My Science Project. And I, I actually, I like to ask guests if they've ever even heard of this movie. Have you heard of it? It's from 1985. No, no, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. This is a movie that it was hard for when Jason suggested it, it was hard for us to even find it. We ended up having to watch a copy of it on uh, somebody had uploaded to YouTube. DVDs of this movie go for like over $100. Now it's from the 80s and there's some problematic things in it, so I can't fully endorse it. But it's a time capsule of, of the 80s. And it is definitely something that because not many people care about it enough, it might just completely disappear one day and just have absolutely no digital trace whatsoever left left wow. behind. Wow. I, I'm, I just looked it up and it is a Disney movie as well. It is. It's crazy. It's crazy. They must have it in uh, the Disney vault. 
Yeah, no, check check out our interview for like my full commentary on it. That movie is banana bonkers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, but back to AI. AI, I don't think, is going to be lost to the sands of time, at least you know, no more than any, any anything else. I think it's a very important movie culturally, and I think a lot of people view it as such. D- do you know a lot, anything about like production-wise or about the reception of this movie that you'd like to talk about? Like, how was this movie received when it came out? Does it have more of a life after home video versions of it came out? Or do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think we have touched upon the fact that I think a lot, it was kind of a controversial movie at the time in terms of whether it was good or not, right? A lot of people thought that it wasn't very good. A lot of people thought that Spielberg had put too much of himself into what was a Kubrick project. And it was kind of like a half Kubrick, half Spielberg movie. And therefore it was neither of neither. A lot of the behind the scenes stuff that I have read about suggests that the movie is pretty faithful in terms of what happens and the plot to what Kubrick had outlined from the beginning. So a lot of people think that the ending is a Spielberg invention that wasn't there at the beginning, but it seems to have been there from the start. And it seems to have been something that Kubrick wanted to do. What I think Spielberg brought to it is all this emotional level and emotions of the flesh fair or the or how, how David is feeling at any given moment. I think that's the Spielberg thing. I think a lot of directors are good at showing you the big cool thing that you came to the movies to see. They're good at showing you that on screen and framing it in awesome ways and making it exciting. What Spielberg is great at is reminding you that the focus of the story is the humans that are running away from the big scary thing. So he always has the big scary thing in the background. He always tries to hide it from you or limit your exposure to it to make you to make it more mysterious or sometimes to make it scarier. And this movie is a great example of that, his restraint. Spielberg is also really well known for his a lot of his perspective shots. We see a lot of the POV stuff from David when he's looking at the picture frames. We see like Monica's first image of David stepping off the elevator. That to me is screaming like Spielberg Spielberg's influence in this movie. Where I see Kubrick popping up in this movie are things like uh, when they're driving into Rouge City and there are those bridges with the large, like, open mouths. You know, they're driving cars, like, directly into these wide-open, sexualized mouths. Like, that, that to me is like, oh, this is a huge... This is when we're entering... The movie is entering into Kubrick territory. Were there any of those visual cues that you kind of noticed where you were like, oh, this, this has Kubrick's hand on it versus Spielberg's hand on it? Hmm. It's a good question. I don't think I am as well versed in in Kubrick to know that uh, part of it. I think the movie, I mean, he directed it, so it's full of Spielberg stuff, right? It's full of Spielberg visions. It's it has his uh, major preoccupations with with broken families and, and mommy and daddy issues and that sort of thing and the kids alone in danger and like you know, all of that stuff, which I think it's in his movies all the time. All right, Conrado, like Brendan Gleeson at the Flesh Fair, we are going to issue our final judgment. This Is this movie a plus one or a minus one for its representation of robots? And I'm going to leave that question open to your interpretation. Is this a plus one or minus one? And, and you know what? If you want to, we can include dinosaurs in this judgment. Because David is a dinosaur? Is that the, the idea? Well, I think this movie is, for me, huh, this is tough. I think this movie is definitely a minus for humans. I think this yes. movie makes a very good argument that humans suck. Um, <laughs> it could be it could be a plus for robots, depending on how you interpret that, right? Like robots in this movie are clearly 
they have been doomed from the start by being created by humans. However, they do manage to survive and, and better themselves and create civilization after civilization is gone. And, and they, they better themselves, like we see with Teddy, we see with David, we see with the, the future mechas that come at the end, that they are capable of learning and, and curiosity and furthering their life. So I'm going to say it's probably a plus for them. You know, they've come a long way. I feel like All they right. deserve it. I agree. I would give, I would definitely give a plus one. I've said a lot about how much I respect the robots in this movie, especially the future version of the robots that we see. I think that their compassion is very evident, which is also a rare thing for movie robots in general, for them to have that level of compassion and understanding. Typically they're depicted as cold and emotionless. Compassion is usually actually the last thing that they're programmed to have. I think these robots are remarkable and respectful and I admire them very much. I like them very much. Some of my favorite movie robots. This is probably another Kubrick thing. The the fact that the robot is the most human-like creature in the the film, right? And the humans are much more distant and cold. Yeah. Conrado, I have two bonus questions that we're going to get to, okay? And you're you're a listener to the show, so uh, these questions have already been a little bit spoiled for you, but that's okay. Question number one, Conrado, this is a part of the podcast that we call What's Your Snack? Conrado, what's your snack? When you used to go to the movies before the global pandemic and you went to a movie theater to enjoy a film, what was the snack that you liked to enjoy at the movie theater? Did you like Mm -hmm. to buy movie theater snacks and candy or did you bring something with you? And now that you're watching movies at home, has that changed at all? Mm -hmm. To answer this question, I can only quote the French actress Isabelle Huppert who said, no snack, no drink, no food, just being focused on the movies. No noise. So you're a purist. I, yeah, I don't, I mean, sometimes I will have, I will have water or like I'm seltzer sometimes when I go to the movies, but I, in general, don't love the snacking because I feel like I can, I don't like when people are eating at movies because there's noise. Popcorn is very noisy. Candy is noisy. And, you know, you go to the Alamo or something and then there's all these food smells. It's not my favorite. I endure it and I think it's fine, but I personally like to just focus on the movie. I also have, I think, a small bladder, so I have to go to the bathroom a lot. So I try to avoid drinking when I go to movies. I will say, if, I, if, I, if I'm going to a movie theater and I know it's going to be a long movie, like, like a movie like this where it's two and a half hours long, I will do my best to eat a full meal before I go because I'm like you, I want to be prepared. I want, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I know I want to be in there from beginning to end. I don't want to have to take a bathroom break. I don't want to be thinking about how much popcorn I have left or, you know, whether I'm still hungry. I don't want to be, I don't want any of those things distracting me from a movie. So if I'm, if I'm sort of anticipating what I'm in for, I'm pretty good at planning that. But I would say most of the time, if I don't know much about the movie and more and more later on in my life, I've, I've tried to keep myself ignorant of of a movie going into it. I try to go into it with fresh eyes as much as possible. You and I have probably talked about this a lot. I I don't watch movie trailers if I can avoid them because I like to have every image of the movie be fresh in my mind the first time I see it to whatever degree that's possible. So that said, this is a movie came out in the summer. It was a summer 
blockbuster release. I definitely remember going into this with my typical movie snack, which was uh, Sour Patch Kids and popcorn. I definitely did not get the movie I was expecting at age 18, but looking back at it later in life, when I watched it a couple nights ago for this, I am watching more movies at home, of course, like everybody is. I've said this on several episodes before. I don't really pop popcorn because I don't have a microwave and I'm really bad at making it on the stove. And also what I'm starting to discover when I'm watching these movies for the podcast, I'm writing down a lot of notes. And I, if I'm trying to eat and write notes and watch the movie, it just doesn't work. So for this one, I stuck to my typical favorite movie snack, which is actually now it's Australian licorice. Conrado, are you familiar with Australian licorice? I know regular licorice, but I'm not a fan. Okay. Is Australian better? What don't you like about regular licorice? That it's so bitter. Okay. Well, are we talking about like the black licorice or the Mm -hmm. strawberry flavored licorice? Black. Okay. Yeah. This is something I should be, I should clear this up for sure. I don't, I don't like the anise flavored, like the the, yeah. the black licorice. Fl- I don't like that in any of its forms, Australian or otherwise, but uh, <laughs> Australian, oh. like the Australian version of like Twizzlers, like uh. Australian candy licorice, uh, good flavored licorice is <laughs> um, the difference is the texture and anyway, there's this one bodega in my neighborhood in Queens that sell that that I know I can reliably find Australian liquor, licorice. It's like a vape shop. And I, I go in there just to buy candy sometimes. <laughs> they sell the best Australian licorice. So anyway, that's what I had while while watching this movie, along with something that uh, I'm going to I'm shamelessly trying to promote this soda company because I discovered them recently. And no, no, no listen, here, here's the thing. Here's my justification. They are veteran owned and I myself am a veteran. And so I, I discovered them through a mutual veteran friend. And uh, so I decided to like check out some of their products. It's called Wild Bill's Old Fashioned Soda. And they make this butterscotch flavor soda. Mm, yeah, okay. it's incredible. So I had that with some Australian strawberry licorice and it was a great like sugar overload, <laughs> really great snack. Uh, but that's what I recommend. Um, that sounds good. One more thing I would like to say about this is that the other thing about going to the movies in the, you know, the past when we were able to go to the movies that I love is going to eat after the movie. And then you get to talk about it. That is true. That is one of my favorite things pre-pandemic to do is to see a movie with somebody that, that, that thinks about movies a lot and that really absorbs them and takes them in and wants to talk about them. And then, yeah, grabbing a beer afterwards or grabbing, uh, you know, food at a diner afterwards and just hashing it out, just like, you know, analyzing it, taking it apart, speculating about it. I love doing that and I miss doing that so much. The, the, other, the other thing, and I, I talk about this a lot in other episodes, is I watching movies at home, I tend to plan meals around it. So I can sort of multitask. But again, I often find the meal to be a distraction from the movie that I don't want to be distracting mm-hmm. myself from. Yeah. Conrado, I have one more bonus question. You already know what it is. So you may have thought about your answer, but um, that doesn't make me any less excited to hear your answer. Mm-hmm. If we replaced two characters in this movie with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, which two characters and how would it improve the movie? Okay. I've thought a lot about this question. So Danny DeVito, Gigolo Joe, perhaps? Or um, my other thought was 
Gigolo Joe, but I think Gigolo Joe is a little too close to Danny DeVito's guest appearance on Friends, in which he plays a stripper, and it's kind of a joke because Danny DeVito doesn't look like a stripper or whatever. So that was my first thought. My second thought uh-huh. is, what if Danny DeVito plays Martin, but just as himself? He's just Danny DeVito is the kid that is about to die and then comes back to life, and it's just Monica loves her kid. It just happens to look like Danny DeVito. I think that would be great. Okay. And for Whoopi, or do you want to go with your Danny DeVito? No, you go ahead. Keep rolling because this is gold. Okay. And for Whoopi, I think I would love when the Mechas from the future come to save David. You know how they come and then they have this voice that you always get in the future. Like, oh, David, we have been looking for you. But what if it was Whoopi Goldberg's voice? That would be incredible. She would like, David, we love you and whatever, you know? (laughs) <laughs> why, why do the scientists of the future all sound like the same guy? They should sound I, like Whoopi Goldberg. Conrado, I don't, I don't do a Whoopi Goldberg impression. I wish that I could, but like her, her word, her like, if if I could, you know how like an impressionist will focus on a certain word. Her word is the word child. Like Whoopi Goldberg says the word child the way no other actor can. So yes, she has to be in this movie. She has to be in a in a position where she can say child. So like anything where she's referring to David, especially if she's one of those future robots, that that's perfect. That's inspired. I don't think I can come up with better casting than that. I might, okay. I might put Whoopi Goldberg. Ugh, man, I'm, I'm thinking of like, which one would I replace as Dr. No? But mm. it has to be Robin Williams. Neither of them, like both of them are great choices for individual reasons, but mm-hmm. it's it just has to be Robin Williams and nobody else. I kind of, I know for sure that I'm saying this because of the movie Dumbo, but I kind of do see DeVito as the Brendan Gleeson character, the ringleader mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. flesh fair a little bit. Man, I think I want to see Whoopi Goldberg as, I want to see, I want to see her as Dr. Hobby. I want Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. yeah. How great is that? That would be great. I was going to say the same thing for DeVito as well. Like I was just thinking, okay. especially now that we've established that Hobby is a maniac. Yeah. Like, I think either of these actors would have a great time playing this dramatic role of Dr. Yeah. Hobby. And, and, and like not even in a jokey way. I think they could do it like, you know, serious and they could do a great job of it. Oh, 100%. I do want to clear up in case anybody in case anybody listens to this podcast and every time I get to like talking about DeVito and Goldberg, I, I really hope nobody interprets that as me mocking or making fun of these actors. I love both of these actors and I, I think they're both very highly capable and respectful and very good at what they do. Yes, I think Whoopi Goldberg would play that complex character of Dr. Hobby where you have a lot of reasons to sympathize, but when you find out the decisions that he, that that the doctor makes based on their past trauma that they're obsessed with, they definitely become a, a morally questionable character. And I think Whoopi Goldberg would play that nuance brilliantly. Okay. Conrado, uh, I want to thank you for coming on Robots and Dinosaurs today. We talked for a long time about this movie, but it's a movie that's very dense with details. I did say earlier, actually, I might've said this before we started recording that it's a, it's a movie that can feel long when you're watching it, but there's not, in my opinion, not a single frame that's wasted. Nothing about this movie is superfluous or Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't, I I, I would, I would watch a cut of it where they might've removed stuff, but I don't think it would be as good. I, I don't think there's anything that you could take out of this. That's 
that's not serving a big purpose in the overall telling of the story. Would you agree or disagree? I, I totally agree. I think this movie is, is, is perfect as it is, even though there are certain stuff that some people might nitpick or, or whatever, or it doesn't feel quite right, but that's what makes it so good. I think the fact that it's perfect by being slightly imperfect is what I love. Conrado, I uh, want to talk to you about one of the projects that you are working on right now. I'm glad that we watched AI. I'm glad we talked about that. Uh, Conrado, you are a big fan of sci-fi. Not only that, you are a creator of sci-fi. Conrado, I have it on good authority that you have an upcoming project that's going to be released. Tell us about the upcoming web series, Wormholes, that uh, you, Conrado Falco, are a co-creator of. Yes, so uh, Wormholes is a sci-fi comedy show that I created with my wife, Sajda, and our good friend, Gamal. And um, it's going to come out on YouTube and Instagram TV uh, starting October 14th. So that day we will release two episodes, and then we will release an episode every week after that. Um, we're very excited about the show. It's it's kind of like a sci-fi sitcom about two mates who live in an apartment that has an interdimensional wormhole in the closet and the kind of shenanigans that happen from there. All right. And uh, where did you where did you come up with this concept? What what gave you the idea to make this web series and and to go with the idea of a wormhole? Uh, originally, Gamal and I were working on a play. Um, we have a theater company called Showdog, and we were going to have our big play come out in April 2020, which turned out to be a horrible timing decision. So we had to scrap our plans, and then we were all stuck in the apartment during quarantine. And we came up with the idea of maybe instead of doing the play, we should do a web series so that everyone can see it, and there's no coronavirus that's going to prevent people from, from watching it, right? I'm not so sure how we came with the idea of wormholes, but we knew that we didn't want to make a show about quarantine and about life at the moment. We wanted something that felt like a little bit of an escape. It turned out that we, obviously, the show speaks a lot about the stuff that we were going through at the time and that we were feeling, but it's, I think the great science fiction and fantasy stuff kind of talks about real life, but through the, the fantasy element, right? So we wanted to talk about the stuff we were feeling through the wormhole, not make it too realistic, not make it too on the nose, make it fun, funny, you know, satirical and that kind of thing. And and I think we did a good job of that. I, li- I like that a lot. One thing, when we were talking about AI, the mo- like the big topic of our discussion today, we were talking about watching a sci-fi movie at different points in your life and how you interpret it differently. So when something is made to be both a commentary on our current time, but also avoids anything too specific to lock it into that time period, it also becomes timeless in a way that you can watch it later on in life and and reflect on it differently you know based on maybe based on just how much technology has advanced in your own lifetime and you're seeing what this movie speculated on when you originally saw it as, as, at a younger time I, I watched the preview that you showed me of wormholes and yeah I think it I think it's one thing that I'm really impressed with is you definitely are working with the limitations that we're, we're all sort of saddled with right now where it's hard to get actors into the same room but you did a lot of clever things with that dealing with that you did a lot of clever things Mm -hmm. in the preview that i saw and i do think it's a good decision to have it not be about quarantine whether it is still a commentary on quarantine or not 
-hmm. Yeah, the limitations were there because we didn't really have a budget, but I think we made it up with like, you know, writing and acting and, and fun kind of effects that we could work with. A lot of guest stars in the show appear only through Zoom or and phones, videos. There's a lot of people on the phone or, or roles that are audio only. So we found a way to get uh, a couple of our good friends who are very talented actors to appear on the show. And we're very happy about that as well. I think they they do some great stuff. Some of them are really funny, in my opinion. I think they all did, did amazing. Cool. Yeah, from the clips that I saw, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was hilarious. I'm, I'm, I'm already a fan of some of these actors' work. I'm actually familiar with your wife's work. I've seen her act before. She's incredibly talented. And as well as Gamal. Gamal is also another artist and, and creator that I'm familiar with. And he's very, very funny in these clips. I, I just think the concept itself is very good. Anybody that does watch this... Uh, let me tell you, like within the first within the first sixty seconds of it, you're gonna get characters established already. The whole situation is established. It's very it's a very smart introduction, and it really sets you up like AI, like Spielberg did with AI. It's it's <laughs> it's previewing the whole story for you. You're getting a little taste of the comic mishaps that you're about to see with these characters and, and you kind of, it lays the groundwork right away in a very funny way. Wow. Thank you for saying that. That's so kind. Actually, we're going to take that quote and put it in all our advertising, comparing us to Spielberg. Um, if you're okay <laughs> with that. Absolutely. Uh, and I hope Spielberg reads that one day. And, and <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, honestly, this is, it's very, very good work. And I think people should definitely check it out. Conrado, where's the best place for people to watch Wormholes when it's available? Mm -hmm. The best way to keep up with anything do it, to do with wormholes is on Instagram, follow at wormholes.tv. But there's also a YouTube channel where the videos are going to be released, and that is Showdogs NYC. If you go on Instagram and follow wormholes, you will get all of the information that you need. That's what we're doing. It's the best way to keep track of what's happening and to not miss anything. All right. And, and listeners, I have a link to all of that in the show notes. There's a link to the, all of the Showdogs social media, so you can follow them on Instagram. A link to the first episode of the video you can watch. And from there, you, can, uh, you should definitely subscribe to... The Show Dogs YouTube channel, so you can get every episode of Wormholes the moment it comes out. Conrado, anything else you want to share with the audience about the web series Wormholes? I think it's great. I think it's funny. We put a lot of work into it, and we're very proud of it. And I just want people to watch it and enjoy it. I think it's a, a good show. Yeah, and it's. I, I think it'll be a good es escape. It's good escapist entertainment, which is my favorite kind. Great. All right, Conrado, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate you being here. Hopefully I can get you back in the future to talk more robots and more dinosaurs. But we got we got into some really interesting facets of AI, some aspects of it that I had never I had never considered before this most recent watch of it. So thank you very much for bringing this movie to the table so that I can look at it with fresh eyes. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. I totally agree with what you said. This conversation has been, for me, incredible. I have, you know, I have learned so much more about this movie, so much, so many details that I hadn't even considered that make so much sense, that make the movie so much even better than it was already, which I already loved it. And now 
I love it even more. So I would love to come on this podcast literally anytime. I will, this was a great experience. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we will definitely invite you back. Coming up on Robots versus Dinosaurs, we are going to be reviewing Tammy and the T-Rex. We are also going to be talking about Wally in a future episode. And I think that that is a great movie to parallel with AI. The ending of AI, in my opinion, is the beginning of Wally. And we're going to dig into that on our Wally episode. Uh, we're also going to talk about Rocky Four, so stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe <laughs> to Robots vs. Dinosaurs so you can get every episode the moment it's released. New episodes are coming out every week. We hope that you'll check out Wormholes and subscribe to Showdog's YouTube channel. The moment Wormholes is released, you can get new episodes of that right in your face. All right, thank you very much, Conrado. Thank you. It's a classic. Stop, stop, stop. Do not adjust your ears. You are hearing me clear. My name is Gamal and I am a culture queen. My name is Sajda and I'm a contrary queen, okay? I'm coming at you with devil's advocate realness. I'm Jelani. I'm a tangent queen. I'm going to distract us from whatever we're talking about and say something I wanted to. Join us all for Pod Queens, a show where we wade into the steamy waters of culture. Pod Queens, available wherever you get your podcasts. Insert tagline here.